Support for Boston Public Radio comes from the Museum of Science, where their new exhibit, Changing Landscapes, an Immersive Journey, transports you to iconic spots around the globe to see how people are adapting to a changing climate. More at mos.org. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, when 23-year-old Elijah McClain was taking a walk in Aurora, Colorado, a resident reported to police that he seemed, quote, sketchy. It was enough for three cops to justify putting McClain in a chokehold and injecting him with a dose of ketamine. Why? According to the officers, McLean was exhibiting signs of excited delirium. But while excited delirium is frequently cited by police departments, in most of the medical community, it's considered junk science. In a few minutes, we'll learn more from Drs. Josh Perdue and Maeve O'Hare when they join us. I'm Jared Bowen, filling in for Marjorie Egan. Decades after Richard Nixon set foot in Shanghai and kicked off a new era of strategic engagement between the United States and China, President Donald Trump appears to be stoking a new Cold War with China, setting the stage for a confrontation between the two powers. Later, we'll hear the full story from WGBH news analyst Charlie Sennett when he joins us. That and more ahead on Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio. I am Jim Browdy, and if I speak first, that probably means that Marjorie Egan has a day off, and who might be sitting in? That would be Jared Bowen. Give me time. Executive Arts Editor, WGBH. That is correct, I believe. Is that right? That's correct. Good morning. Great to be with you. Nice to have you, Jared, here. So Marjorie's off for a couple of days. Jared will be with us, and I'm glad you are, too. We're going to start with this. Uh, Obviously, when it comes to coronavirus, Massachusetts is doing far better than a majority of the other states. And to make sure it stays this way as cases continue to surge, particularly in the South and West, Governor Baker is getting tough on travel. A week from today, I'm sure you know this, his new order goes into effect. And this means people entering Massachusetts from most other states have to quarantine for 14 days or face a $500 a day fine. This applies to vacationers, college students coming back to school, and Massachusetts residents coming home from out-of-state trips. There are exemptions, as you know, from the quarantine or, but I should be clear here, a quarantine or you've had a test, a negative test, uh, that, uh, a negative test in the last 72 hours. The exceptions are the other five New England states, New York, New Jersey, and Hawaii. In theory, this makes sense to keep the spiking infection rates at bay. But in practice, do you believe this is going to work? Are these new rules too strict since they're largely based on the honor system? Do you trust people to be honest? And if you work in local tourism industry, this starts in August 1st. Is this a further blow to you? Does this have you rethinking summer vacation and travel plans? The answer, the number is 877-301-8970. I could not be more supportive of what Baker is doing here as of August uh, 1st. How about you, uh, Jared Bone? Same here. I think it sends an absolute message that we take this seriously, that we have been through such horrific times here in Massachusetts because of what we saw at the beginning of this pandemic, that we are not willing to see what's happening in the rest of the country, or not the rest, but so many parts of the country, particularly in the South and the West. So, you know, as I was saying to a couple of friends over the weekend, the governor brought the hammer down, and I think in a really good and loud way to say that we are taking this so seriously. We have been so careful. We have all put in the effort, and we can't let that slide. Uh, yeah, I, again, I, I am there. And by the way, I, I really feel bad for, uh, obviously, for the businesses. I mean, what's this is going to do for the Cape? If you got a reservation and you're from uh, Ohio and you were coming for a week in August, 
Uh, it's a problem. I mean, it's a problem. But I, I, I have to say, I'm obsessed with California because unlike Texas and Florida and places like that, which were irresponsible, in the case of Florida, they're you know just a sycophantic governor who, if Donald Trump says jump, he says how high. And this is before Trump changes tune on so many things last week, at least publicly. But uh, Gavin Newsom in California was aggressive early on, closed early on, apparently didn't open as responsibly as he might. Uh, But it's a cautionary tale for me. And so while there will be some further suffering, it is far better to get ahead of it. And you know what made me realize? I totally agreed with your analysis at the time. But I was thinking about it, and then I think it was in the Saturday Globe, maybe it was the Friday Globe, I don't know what day it was, uh, talking about college kids returning to town, which, of course, I hadn't thought a huge amount about because it's not going to be at 100% level. But there are a lot of college kids returning to town, a lot of them from hotspot parts of the country. And the question is, what kind of impact is that going to have, even though I know there are places that are doing a colossal amount of testing, I think Northeastern or someplace thinking of doing thousands a day, but it's a scary proposition, so it's tough. Uh, it is going to hurt some people, but I think in the long run, getting ahead of this is exactly what Baker needs to be doing. So that's two votes anyway. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I realized in, in preparing for the segment, I, I talked to three friends from around the country over the course of the last week to and get a really grim picture. I, just yesterday, I was talking to a friend in California who just sees it bearing down. She actually works at a museum there. There was just a couple of days for, away from opening. They were so excited to be able to do that again. They had to stop that immediately uh, and, and are aware of how this is just growing and ballooning there. I talked to a friend in Maryland who was thinking about coming up here to Massachusetts just to get away. She'd mm-hmm. had enough during the summer, but looked around at what was happening in Maryland and realized it would not be at all safe. And then I think right after that, I had to send her Baker's guidelines to say that you really couldn't do this now anyway. And then I talked to a friend in, uh, or was emailing a friend in, in South Carolina who actually has the coronavirus right now. Uh, oh, geez. She, she wasn't hospitalized, fortunately, but she said it's awful. She's exhausted. It's taken a long time to get over it. So just, you know, these three different regions of the country, you realize that we have to be so careful. We cannot take for granted the low rates that we have now and the relative health that we have right now. You know, uh, the number is 877-301-8970. On board with Baker's, I I think, rather extreme but necessary thing. I am worried about enforcement. Uh, I don't, I know you have, you allegedly have to fill out this Massachusetts travel form, I think it's called, and there's a $500 a fine, a day fine, potentially. I, I don't know how strictly it's going to be enforced. My view is the stricter the better. But you know what? I mentioned this before we're on the air. I'm assuming 90% of our audience has seen this. It's all over uh, the Internet, all over Twitter, all over social media of all kinds. The two ferry boats in uh, off Niagara Falls so perfectly encapsulate the United States versus much of the rest of the world, particularly Canada, and Massachusetts, at least of late, as compared to other states. They have two ferry boats. And you see this video, Jared, of the uh, U.S. ferry boat, which is pretty much packed to the gills. And you see the Canadian ferry boat, which I think is at 10 or 15 percent of oh, capacity. <laughs> and so essentially, Baker is embracing the 10 yeah. or 15 percent of capacity approach. And again, I know it's going to hurt some businesses, but what's going to hurt businesses a hell of a lot worse is if the number of cases flares up again here. And, you know, we're acting, by the way, as if every time people talk about Massachusetts and how much better it is, which it is, it's sort of like, well, we're good here. 8,000 people died. 8,000 people in this state died. 
So it took a while to get a handle on this, but we do have a handle, and uh, it should stay that way if at all possible. By the way, the governor, speaking of the governor, will be joining us on August 6th. I think it's a week from Thursday, I think, or some such time on our show at noon, 877-301-8970. Do you know anybody complaining about this? Uh, I don't know anybody complaining. And I, and I think the way you just said, too, goes to what I've thought so much about this is that we were so aware of this at the beginning. Uh, and and, and I'm, because you saw people get sick, you may have known people who died. We saw the worst of this. We saw it immediately. And just at a moment when you might start to let your guard down because so much time has elapsed mm-hmm. or it's summer and you might feel a little exactly. bit more comfortable. Then we see what's happening in these other parts of the country. And it reminds you of this, this, this trauma that we experienced. Do we, we can not possibly be back in a situation where hospitals are fretting about not being able to treat all of their patients or where they're running out of PPE. We, we've just, we've been there. We've done that. We have to do everything that we can. And clearly governor Baker agrees to make sure that doesn't happen again. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. Where do you want to start there, uh, Jared Bowen? Let's start with Jay in East Providence. Hey Jay, what's up? I'm pretty much done with travel. Um, just saw that the Phillies Yankees game in Philadelphia has been postponed because the Miami Marlins left coronavirus all over the visitors' locker room. And if we can't get the sports teams to test their people and be honest about it, uh, you know what? I have, a, I have a staycation coming up. I will be staying local. Well, I don't think you're – I didn't know about the uh, Phillies uh, uh, situation, actually. I actually just posted. Is that so? Um, uh, yeah, I, 10 o'clock this morning. Really? Uh, that's really troubling. And, by the yeah. way, baseball has this, uh, I think, the toughest of all the sports. It was their choice. The hockey uh, – forget football for the moment. Hockey and, and basketball are obviously in these bubbles. Hockey – in two places in Canada and obviously basketball in Orlando. Uh, This travel thing is going to be really tough uh, for baseball players. And I have to say, I I don't think you're unwise, Jay, to say for the time being uh, the safest route is to stay. Even though, you know, by the way, you know, your governor, I think it was in the paper just yesterday, is getting high praise for testing availability and for a whole variety of other things she's doing but it isn't like there's a wall on rhode island or massachusetts the reality is other states can so i hear you jay and i'm tempted to do the same thank you for the uh uh, call call. pleasure our number is 877-301-8970 that story about uh um, the phillies game uh uh Phillies game against uh yankees canceled after marlin's coronavirus outbreak i mean that's Really, were we three days into the 60-game baseball season? That's a pretty big deal, don't you think? And they are getting, from what I understand, you know, uh, elite testing. And uh, uh, and if it's happening there, another cautionary tale, governors have to do what they have the power to do. We understand how easy this is to spread. And, and I had the same reaction as you did, Jim, when I also had the realization from the coverage yesterday the potential of what college students returning could bring. And they are coming from all over the country. I, I, I saw the bro- break, breakdown, which a lot of them actually come from uh, regions and states that are exempt, which is good news for mm-hmm. us, uh, according to the Baker, the new Baker travel restrictions. But there are a number of students, a huge population of students who return to Massachusetts every year from California. 
California. Uh, and, and we do see what young people have been doing. We do know that young people have been filling up these hospitals around the country. That was the case here, too, in Massachusetts in the spring. So many people were younger than we initially realized uh, that I think we have to brace ourselves. Well, not only that. I mean, even if they're from an exempt state because the, the uh, positivity rate or whatever the criterion is, is good, uh, uh, young men are the most irresponsible demographic group without a close second. Marjorie likes to cite South Boston. But, you know, some of these images, even in Massachusetts, are not so uh, reassuring. And, I, I, I listen, I, you got to do what you got to do, and I, I give him uh, credit. Don and Lemonster, you're next on Boston Public Radio with me, Jim Browdy, and Jared Bone. We're talking about the governor's travel uh, restrictions as of August 1st. Hi there, Donna. Well, I wish they were um, a week ago. I was in the post office in Clinton the other day, and there was an elderly gentleman, and I'm also a senior, mm-hmm. and, and he was changing his address from Florida to Lancaster, Massachusetts for his whole family. Now, this gentleman didn't have a mask on. They didn't say anything in the post office about him having, you know, not having a mask. And when I put it on our town site on Facebook, I mean, they jumped over me like I was doing, like I was stoning the man by even mentioning that he didn't have a mask or came from Florida. That's a hot spot. Yeah. I was just appalled. I could not believe it. Well, you know, I have to say, uh, uh, thanks for your call. I, I, I had a Home Depot experience yesterday. And uh, uh, I don't know what precise number. Maybe one out of eight Home Depot employees, their mask didn't cover their nose. Maybe one out of five Home Depot customers had their mask around uh, their neck. They had a mask, but they had it around their neck when they came into the store. And you know what the issue that really raised? Enforcement is everything, as far as I'm concerned. And it's unfortunate when... And Donna, thank you very much for your call. We appreciate it. Uh, uh, Enforcement, I I hate to see private businesses having to be the cops on these things. The reality is, if Baker's going to do something like this travel order, he's got to make sure that it's enforceable and don't make the local whatever it is, local motel owner or whatever, have to be the enforcement agent. And I know we're in a time where we want fewer cop intrusions rather than more, but public health is a pretty big deal, and we've got to figure out a way to police this thing or monitor this thing or something. But you think, what are we enforcing? I was thinking about this after we had this conversation with Emily on Friday. Yeah. You're asking people to put on a mask. It takes about three seconds. The masks can be purchased for very, very, very cheaply. Uh, so that's all you have to do. It's just slipping a mask over your face for for the 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 short amount of time hopefully that you're you're in public that's all you have to do that's all we're asking because it has that's and how thankful are we that just such small measures can have huge effect to contain the coronavirus i agree well the mask thing is the best i mean it's just every night i'm so bored of it in so many ways to hear television anchors say you know wear your mask and then as soon as i hear it and get aggravated that i have to hear it again you go out in the world and you realize there's still resi- it's not as much resistance as there was. And even some of these recalcitrant governors are growing up. But did we say, by the way, I know NPR said this, the National Security Advisor of the President of the United States of America, O'Brien, tested positive today. And while they say, as they always do, you have no idea if it's true or not, he said limited or no contact with the president or vice uh, uh, president, it's getting closer and closer and closer to the uh, top. But, of course, Donald Trump says he endorses masks now, too. So we shall see. Should we go back to our calls and go to John from New Hampshire? Hi, John. Hello, John. 
Hey, how you guys? How you guys doing, Jim? I've been listening to you for a really long time. Love your show, John. You're very nice. Thank you. Um, here's my question. I have a daughter who lives in Austin, Texas. I haven't seen her for a long time, and uh, she is planning a visit to New Hampshire uh, in a couple weeks. Now she's flying it to Logan, and I'm just wondering now how does this work? She's got a quarantine for 14 days. Where? Um, and um, how would this affect her? Well, first of all, the one thing I checked this morning is, uh, which I don't have an answer to, is, you know, there's an alternative to quarantine, is a negative test uh, within 72 hours. However, there's a catch to that, too. It's not that you got the results within 72 hours. It's a test taken within 72 hours where the results are negative. And the reason I bring that up, it sounds like a distinction without a difference, it is a huge distinction because in many jurisdictions, it is really hard to get test results in three days. So mm. it, even if you have the test, it may be impossible to satisfy that criterion of the two. But the quarantine answer thing is they can't go out in the world. I mean, how they quarantine in your house, in their room, whatever, I guess is up to you. And doctors will give you the right. best advice that they literally should be behind a door and you should leave their food at the door and that sort of thing. But it means... They stay oh, in, wow. they don't go out, and it means it for for two weeks, essentially. So, John, we wish you luck, and I think you're not alone. There are a ton of people, particularly in the summer, who are going to welcome family members, or we're planning at least to welcome yeah. family members and others from all over the country, and it's going to be a lot tougher if they're not from New England, New York, New Jersey, or Hawaii. And, John, you said you're, you're from New Hampshire. Your daughter's flying into Logan? She, he, she's flying into Logan, and she, and she lives outside of Austin, Texas. So yeah. that's like one of the big... Oh, you're in New Hampshire. I'm sorry. Yeah. So, but wait, and all right. she's going to be, you know, she's going to be on a plane, and she's coming from Texas, and, you know, I'm just wondering what's the safest, yeah, she, what's she, the safest she, idea. Just yeah. know that she is permitted to fly into Logan and then just basically travel straight up to New Hampshire. I'm sorry, I didn't without, realize you are in New Hampshire, yeah. Yeah, without taking any time, and then, of course, you'll have to check your state's regulations um, about quarantining. I'm glad you said that, John. Good luck. The, the travel through exception we should have mentioned. If you're just either commuting in and out, is it commuting in and out that's an exception? I think. And if you're doing what you said, like getting off a plane and then moving on to another state, kind yep. of. Uh, or coming for doctor's appointments. There are a list of exceptions, but yeah. So let's assume if you rented a place in the Cape and you're from Ohio or outside Austin, Texas, and it's only for a week, or even if it's two weeks, you're going to stay in for a week or two weeks, or you're going to tempt it and try to circumvent it what are you going to do yeah i i think well if i'm doing it i'm not doing anything <laughs> no. that's the question but yeah you've you've and then this gets into the whole issues of refunds and last minute that's and a very good point although the demand is so pent up that hopefully if if people realize it's not the wisest thing for them to come to another part of the country there are people lined up locally who can take their space well you know by the way that's a question for christopher muther from the globe by the way if you have a flight in from one of the states that's not exempt from this order and it was after august 1st since you can't quarantine in your case for 14 days, can you get a refund? I would assume the answer is probably no, but I don't know. Well, we are talking about Governor Baker's new travel rules and asking you if they go too far or not. The conversation continues on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie. Again, if you're just tuning in, we're talking about Governor Baker's new travel order, which goes into effect next Monday, August 1st, taking your calls, asking you if you think you went too far. Do you worry they're difficult to enforce? Do, you have, do they have you scrambling? Were you going to have friend or family visit from out of town? And by the way, I left this out. Were you planning on going away? If you're here now listening to us and you're planning on going to Ohio for a few days and coming back, well, you're subject as a resident who left the state and came back. You're subject to either the quarantine or a test that was w- administered within 72 days. So it's pretty tough if it's enforced in a tough fashion. 877-301-8970. Well, let's go to, is it uh, Margaret calling from Vermont? Apologize if I get your name wrong, Margaret. <laughs> Hi. Um, I think it's Margaret. Margaret. Hi, Margaret. It's, um, the, hi. Uh, I've met you before at the library on your first uh, broadcast there. Oh, great. But I just wanted to say, my, and I love you both, um, nice. and you too, Jared. Thank you. Um, my younger son lives in Colorado. He came across about three and a half weeks ago. And my older son and his girlfriend and I were going to our vacation spot in Maine. But we insisted that he quarantine in a part of our house for two weeks. This was really hard. Well, I, I haven't seen him in over a year. But but we did it because we have to. And what I don't understand is so many people in this country don't get it. Could and you explain, Margaret, could you, how did you do it exactly? What, did you FaceTime him from his bedroom? or a bed, How did you do it? Uh, well, because he lives in Colorado, we... we call each other very often and we FaceTime and uh, the three of us get on the phone together. So we're rather used to uh, long distance. Uh, and I've been an immigrant all my life. So I've long distance with my friends and family all over the world. So to me, it's not a new thing. Um, but I, I just wish America would wait, wake up. Look at the European countries. Yeah. Good grief. When when their president or premier or whatever says we're doing a lockdown, everybody goes, okay, that's what we're doing. And here, it's Americans fighting Americans for our freedom. Well, a coffin is not freedom, and they don't get it, and it infuriates me. Well, by the way, they might get it. You were talking about the leaders in these other countries. They might get it if the leader in this country sided with science and public health. It's very possible that other than on the margins, there wouldn't have been this kind of pathetic, life-threatening division. And that's what right, we're missing. That... Now, again, Trump changes tune, at least on pu- in public last week. Let's see if that causes people like DeSantis and others to uh, to uh, change theirs. Margaret, thank you, and good luck. That's that's incredible. I mean, you have your kid who you haven't seen, what you say, in a year? Yeah. And he comes and you shove him in his room. But that is the responsible – it is the responsible – thing to do it's the sacrifices that you make and, and later you'll be proud to have made them I, you know right now i'm reading eric larson's book the, the splendid in the vile the mm-hmm. great new york times bestseller and he, which is all about the blitz and you know if you wanted to have analogies the president has described this in the past as a war that was a war churchill was the leader he got everybody in england to do what they were supposed to do to to button down to turn the lights out at night so they could avoid the bombs raining down. Again, one would argue that this is easier because you can contain this simply by wearing a mask, but people did what they had to do. When you say one would argue, 
Everybody would argue. I mean, you can still go outside. You can still get take. Well, you can actually go inside a restaurant if you choose. You can go to the beach if you do it yep. responsibly. Yep. You can do almost everything except go to a bar and clubs and that sort of thing as long as you do it responsibly. The, the level of sacrifice is so pathetically modest. It is incredible. But, uh, you know, I'm dying to hear. I, I look for it over the week. I didn't, uh, uh, I should have read the comments on the Globe story. I'm sure they excoriated the uh, the governor, but they shouldn't because, again, get ahead of the curve. In this instance, he is. We didn't do it in this state with, when I was tempering my remarks before, particularly with long-term care facilities. Massachusetts and Rhode Island had a huge share of their deaths from older people, which is really, really sad. So let's go to Julia in Arlington. You're on Boston Public Radio with Jared Bonamy, Jim Browdy. Hi. Hi. How are you today? We're great. Um, long-time listener. I listen almost every day. Thank, Thank you. you for your balanced opinion. Thanks. Um, so so I'm responding to, I guess, a couple points. But number one, the staycation option. Mm-hmm. I'm a mom of two kids. Um, obviously, Arlington had one of the earliest outbreaks, including my daughter's public school. Oh, brother. And so taking this seriously is... You know, definitely been at the forefront, and nothing has actually changed in terms of what we can do per- to prevent exposure and what our options for treatment and prevention are. Right? So, so unequivocally, my pediatrician says, "Don't travel, don't mm-hmm. go to pools, don't do extra stuff. We we have to remain diligent." By the way, how old are your kids, Julia? Eleven and five. Well, that's yeah. You know, and Julia was talking about staying put. One thing we haven't mentioned, Jared and Julia, is what is it, 150 doctors or whatever those people are, public health types, doctors basically saying to the leaders of the country, shut it down, shut the whole damn thing down for a few weeks and in an attempt to cleanse us all of this horror. Good luck with you and your kids, Julia. And uh, it's a sacrifice, but it's a life saving one. So I, you know, I, 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 Really hard to quarrel with this as far as I'm uh, concerned. I would love to see a poll done today about where people are. I mean, Massachusetts has been a hell of a lot more responsible, again, except for young men, I should say. Not all young men, but that's the demographic that's been most irresponsible. But I hope people are supporting Baker on this because he's doing the right thing. I completely second that. Well, coming up, how a controversial syndrome is being used to justify the kind of police brutality we saw used against George Floyd. That conversation is next on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. Jared Bowen is sitting in for Marjorie. A syndrome called excited delirium is known in most of the medical community as a bogus disorder, but in law enforcement circles, it's often used to justify police brutality. In the wake of George Floyd's death, doctors Maeve O'Hare 
and Dr. Joshua Badu wrote about this for the Washington Post. Dr. O'Hare is a neuromuscular fellow at MGH and Brigham and Women's. Dr. Badu is a neuro-oncology fellow at MGH, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and Brigham and Women's Hospital. Doctors O'Hare and Badu, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having us. Sure. Yeah, um, thank you for having us on. Yeah, thank you so much. Dr. Badu, let me start with you. This is a term that I think no, not a lot of people really know, and it's, it's a hard question to ask you to define something that you'll also talk about how really can't be defined, at least medically, because it's not necessarily a, an accepted term. But can you give us a sense of, of how authorities across the countries are embracing this term, excited delirium, and how they're using it? Uh, yeah, so... Um Excited delirium, as, as you kind of mentioned before, it's this kind of catch-all diagnosis that's kind of being used both retroactively to explain away deaths in police custody, um, and on top of it, there's different protocols about it. Um, in our one, and basically in our research, and what we've seen is that this is used as this kind of um, blanket defense afterwards, in which a person who's in police custody, either in restraints, who's either agitated or um, under drug intoxication or so. Um, they're basically put in restraints, and then afterwards they, they die from the supposed condition. And what we've seen is that this is actually basically used um, afterwards, um, saying that a, patient, uh, a person or a person in custody has died, and now they died because of excited delirium. And in looking at it, it's basically this term that's kind of sprung out from the 80s and 90s, um, and now it's being uh, kind of embraced throughout the entire like, law enforcement uh, uh, community. But Dr. Badu, staying with you for a second, just to understand a little bit more about what it's those who are uh, standing behind it or advancing it are suggesting. The notion is under this, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that that all of a sudden somebody, uh, more likely than not a young black man, which is, of course, not coincidental, uh, uh, becomes aggressive and out of control. Uh, theoretically, it is often has something to do with drug abuse, and then the thinking goes, particularly in law enforcement community, that that person with extreme delirium uh, uh, all of a sudden develops extraordinary strength and uh, doesn't feel pain and all that sort of thing. And that is theor- that, that condition, in quotes, is theoretically what justifies extraordinary force on the part of the cop. Is that, is that a fair description of what it's supposed to be? Yeah. Yes, and, and, you know, we want to be really clear that there are certain real medical conditions. There's people who um, they're, they're, they're are, are on drugs, they're on PCP and methamphetamines who do have superhuman strength, who do have, are impervious to pain. That, that's different from, you know, the, the supposed excited delirium. And it really goes back to kind of the racist undertones in which this description was first um, described. Um, there's, like, some historical stuff in the 18th, 49 um, about it by basically Luther Bell, um, and that um, paper is actually completely different than um, what we're seeing today. Uh, people who believe in excited delirium like to uh, basically link that and say there's historical precedence, but that's completely false. Uh, that He described patients who basically were admitted to a psychiatric hospital actually here in Boston. McLean, at, um, right? McLean hospital. Yeah. Yep. And it was called Bell's Mania. So over two to three weeks, these patients were admitted, they had a fever, they got progressively worse, and then died. Um, they probably had some type of infection. This is completely different. This is some type of uh, supposed syndrome that people automatically, uh, you know, within minutes, they, they just die when they're in police custody. Uh, 
and then this term kind of basically went out of um, fashion for over 100 years and was brought back in the 80s really to explain away crack cocaine um, use and death. And I think that's when it really the, the big part for us, the racist own undertones really became apparent. Because in that same time, uh, whites who died of cocaine um, use were basically labeled as accidental overdose, whereas blacks were labeled as dying from excited delirium. And then from there, it sprung out to this now big concept, this catch-all diagnosis in which, um, you know, someone is predisposed to all these conditions. And it's, it's, really, it's really dangerous because you're putting real medical conditions and real medical terminology and kind of misappropriating it into something that, that's not. And it's, it's yeah, it's, it's a pretty terrible condition. Dr. Mavo here to bring you into the conversation. You're one of several authors of this piece in the Washington Post, which is bringing this to light, moving again forward to the present day and how widespread this seems to be used uh, among authorities across the country in, in cases, especially involving black men. Is this what was it seeing what how this was being deployed across the country, the use of this that brought you in? How did you become involved uh, with with diving into the use of this term? Yeah, so as you already sort of alluded to, um, this is not a diagnosis that doctors give. You know, we don't use it in our clinical practice. I've never heard a doctor use this term, and I've never come across it in academic literature related to my work as a neurologist. Um, it was only really in light of the media coverage of uh, George Floyd's death uh, that I actually came across the term being used as it, as it is used in law enforcement circles. Um, and actually, it was my husband, who's not a doctor, who came across um, an article uh, that was talking about how this term excited delirium might be used as part of the defense in the George Floyd murder case. Um, and you know, he was asking me, you're a neurologist. Have you come across this before? Is this a real thing? And I was really taken aback when I started looking into it, you know, um, how the term's being used um, and how it's sort of... Uh, kind of cobbling together a bunch of different real medical conditions, um, but using this term excited delirium as a sort of blanket diagnosis that can be, you know, applied retroactively um, in many circumstances. You know, I want to stay with you, Dr. O'Hare, just for a second, uh, but then I want to get back to the basics of, of this, if we can, in a minute. Even if this extreme delirium thing was real, uh, uh, it seems to me even as it's defined by its supporters, it wouldn't apply to the Floyd situation. I know one of the officers, not Chauvin, but one of the officers used the term while Chauvin is killing uh, George Floyd. But at least uh, this notion of aggression and all this other stuff, none of those signs were ones that came clear in the video. So while Chauvin and the others may use it in their defense, which is what a lot of people are predicting, there's no evidence that even the bogus uh, uh, diagnosis would apply to Floyd. Is that not true, Dr. O'Hare? You know, I think I think really the dangerous thing about this term is that it's not defined, right? Mm -hmm. So you can use it uh, very subjectively. I see. And the, the, the things that um, are described as being, you know, the diagnostic features of excited delirium are very vague. And we see them all the time in you know, circumstances in the hospital that we would never label that way. So agitated patients, aggressive patients, um, patients who are sweaty, um, those are all like features that are supposedly of uh, excited delirium, but, you know, they're clearly just not specific and, and the term can be applied um, in an, any number of ways. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, the, the, the idea of someone possessing superhuman strength or being impervious to pain or um, continuing to resist arrest and continuing to struggle, those are all supposed um, clinical features, but clearly, you know, they're very subjective as well. So what's your sense of, uh, Dr. Badu, I'll ask you this, your sense of how this is being uh, accepted or taught or used throughout the law enforcement community, even as there is this divide, even as the medical community has weighed in and, and, and said what you're saying as much that this is not a, a medical diagnosis. But So I guess how widespread is it being used in this country and, and how has it been allowed to take hold, do you think? So, and, and again, that, that's, as uh, Dr. O'Hare had pointed out, the entire thing is very vague and subjective. And, uh, and kind of looking at it, it, this is a term that's used by a lot of different police departments across the nation. It's in the FBI kind of database on, on how to um, handle uh, these people. And it gets really, really dicey because uh, when you're basically saying there's this syndrome that predisposes people to, you know, being uh, impervious to pain, superhuman strength, what are your techniques going to be? Obviously, you're going to try to, you know, you're, you're force, you're going to use excessive force, and because basically police are taught that, you know, baton usage or even like punches or kicks are not going to be effective. Then you go on to like tasers, you go into these kind of um, uh, really severe restraints like knee to neck hold um, or, or knee um, knee to neck choke holds as well as hog tie restraints. And um, when kind of we were looking at it, it's it's. Kind of unclear, but there's different in almost every single major city. There's always some report of excited delirium over the past 25 years or so, and there's um, it's being mentioned by both police, law enforcement, as well as the legal community. And taser manufacturers, when they get sued, love pulling this thing too. Yeah, I want to stay, Dr. O'Hare, on this impervious at the pain thing for a minute. You guys mentioned in your Washington Post piece, and by the way, we're talking to Dr. Maeve O'Hare and Dr. Joshua Badu who wrote a piece in the Washington Post with a colleague about extreme delirium. You acknowledge that the American College of Emergency uh, Physicians, the quote you published a controversial paper in 2009, but I have to, you know, I have to say beyond that, uh, Art Kaplan, who's a medical ethicist from NYU, is on our show every week, and more than once we have discussed an incredibly disturbing study a few years ago. I think it was uh, medical residents, white medical residents, a, a huge percentage of whom harbored these obscene uh, uh, myths about uh, African Americans, that their skin was thicker than uh, whites, that they were impervious to pain, speaking of that expression. So even if it's been discredited by responsible people in the medical community, there is a slice of the medical world that I don't know about extreme delirium, but at least buys the myths that are attached to extreme delirium, Dr. O'Hare. Yes, definitely. Um, I think we have, unfortunately, a very racist history in medicine that we're, you know, coming to terms with. And we're having to, you know, look back at a lot of the definitions that were made and a lot of, you know, um, uh, the way things have been described over the years that it are are definitely racist. Um, you know, there's there's a huge amount of evidence to show that um, uh, you know black people in America, you know, get worse um, medical care as a mm -hmm. result of these racist beliefs um, that including you know worse outcomes in childbirth, um, being less likely to receive adequate pain relief. Um, 
you know, compared to um, white people in the same situation. Um, so, so yeah, it's definitely that that's definitely real, um, unfortunately, and um, and and certainly uh, comes back to this this the way that this term excited delirium is being disproportionately applied to young black men. Well, looking at recent modern history, I was really stunned to learn that it seems it, and correct me if I'm wrong, it kind of resurfaced in more modern times as it was applied to female black sex workers in Miami in the 1980s. It was a way to excuse how what was presumably a very disenfranchised society, how, how black women were dying. Uh, when it turns out that was not the case, that there was a, a serial murder that was happening. But but this has been a term more recently that seems to always be used or focused on people of color. Yeah, definitely. And what you're referring to there with the the, the serial killer, that that's sort of an, an interesting aside in how how this um, condition was first described. But yeah, the one of the people who first um, kind of popularized this term, excited delirium. He used it extremely loosely, including in, in a series of deaths of uh, black women um, uh, that ultimately turned out to be a, called by a serial killer. Um, but he, he, he described them as excited delirium, um, believing that because they were chronic cocaine users, they were prone to this condition. You know, I have to say, first of all, people should absolutely read your piece in The Washington Post. And the one line that summed it up for me on this extreme delirium, uh, and I, my typing is so abysmal, I may get a word or two wrong, but the gist of it was, it's a tragic paradox, an apparently terminal condition, meaning extreme delirium, that can be treated only with the escalation of force, inevitably increasing the chances that it will be uh, fatal, which I think just brilliantly summed up this term that neither Jared nor I had heard of. Can we change gears for a few minutes, uh, doctors, if you can? Uh, Dr. Badu, you wrote a really interesting piece. I think it was for the Huffington Post in, at the end of March, at the relative beginning of coronavirus, talking about how the, uh, the, uh, the entire model of care had been upended, how so many things that were critical had been back burner because it was all coronavirus all the time. You called on the president, federal government, and the president to do a serious shelter in place, which never happened, serious use of the Defense Protection Act, which, of course, did not happen. It's now four months later. Uh, uh, what would you say about the state of your practice of what you do for a living four or five months into uh, the coronavirus pandemic in the United States? Oh. You know, the unfortunate thing and really the heartbreaking thing is that when I read that article, it could be published today. Mm. And the, we're undergoing the same problems nationally. There's still a lack of PPE. Testing is taking you know days to weeks. There's no contact tracing. And the, the thing that I really wanted to kind of bring to light was that without a cohesive nas national response, this would continue. And unfortunately, four months into the uh, coronavirus pandemic, it is continuing. And it's sad because, you know, us here in Boston and in New York, the people who you know, experienced this firsthand and, and immediately on kind of were trying to disseminate information. And that's unfortunately been ignored. Um, Doc, in terms of. Go ahead. Sorry. I'm sorry. Continue, please. No, go ahead. And, you know, just in, in terms of how this has affected our practice, you know, we're still doing lots of virtual visits, which have their ups and downs. But 
unfortunately, uh, you know, for, for my practice, we uh, I deal with um, cancer patients, patients with, with brain tumors. And, you know, it's really difficult for these patients to be in the hospital without any family members here. And it's, you know, there's so many hidden costs of coronavirus and COVID that, you know, it's it, it's really has upended the entire medical field. Is it clear that can, some cancer patients have died because either their uh, treatment was delayed by for medical reasons, meaning because of the COVID, all COVID all the time thing, or because they were too nervous to enter a facility to get care? So uh, I don't think studies are out yet, but you could kind of assume it's, it's going to be true because if your biopsy, if your resection of a tumor is delayed by weeks to months because now it's termed not an urgent surgery, then, you know, these are people with a limited amount of weeks to months to live. And if they're not diagnosed, if they're not treated appropriately with chemotherapy or, or um, basically taking out of that, that, that tumor, their lives are affected, both quality of life as well as life expectancy. Dr. O'Hare, you have a really, uh, I think, fascinating perspective on this. You were on maternity leave when the pandemic started, so you've returned to work to find a completely different system, as we've just been describing. What has it been like to, to have that kind of, that shock to reconcile what you're seeing within the medical system now as you go back to work? Yeah, it's it was really a strange way to get back to work. Um, it. it yeah, it felt like overnight, you know, the whole, the whole hospital, the whole medical practice has just been turned on its head. And so, you know, I've never really gotten back to what, what I would have thought of as normal before. Um, and, you know, I wonder if we ever will. Um, so much care is being given virtually, which, um, as, you know, uh, Josh kind of alluded to, it, it does have its advantages. But one of the huge disadvantages and one of the things that makes our, our lives as neurologists just so much more difficult um, with this uh, uh, pandemic is the fact, is, is the limitations in, um, in uh, uh, kind of face-to-face -face care, which is so important in, in neurology and, and having, you know, family members there to provide support um, for patients with brain diseases who are very vulnerable. You know, one last thing about coronavirus before uh, you uh, to leave us. Obviously, when you compare the numbers in Massachusetts to the numbers around the country, you have to be thankful that we are here. And obviously, the governor announced the end of uh, last week that starting August 1st, if you're not from a New England state or New York or New Jersey, you either have to quarantine for two weeks if you come in or uh, you have to have a, uh, a negative test, I think, within 72 hours or some finite period of time. But after that happened, I'm reading in the Globe this weekend something that should have been obvious. The college kids are coming back to town, not in quite the numbers they did in the past. Obviously, a ton of them are going to come from uh, uh, hotspot states and cities. We know that California uh, obviously was very aggressive in the beginning, and we see what's happening there, even though a lot of people think they're reopening was both uneven and, and unwise. Starting with you, Dr. Badu, are you concerned about the future here in Massachusetts, or do you think uh, we've got it pretty firmly under control? So I'm, I'm thankful that, you know, we live in a state in which people have embraced wearing masks and, you know, doing basic public health initiatives. But, you know, honestly, I, I am pretty afraid because, you know, uh, Massachusetts is not an isolated state. 
um, even with, you know, like a 14-day kind of um, quarantine or infect, really, how are you supposed to enforce that? And if the rest of the country, you know, coronavirus is kind of surging, it, it all, all it really takes is one super spreader event or something like that to kind of go, go on. So, you know, I would say that, that it, we really need to be vigilant. You know, right now it's a calm period for us, but we need to continue to take this seriously. We need to wear masks and we need to, re- to really be vigilant about this. What are your thoughts on that, Dr. O'Hare? Yeah, exactly what um, Dr. Badu said. You know, we know that masks work. I think that's one of the biggest things in our arsenal now that we didn't necessarily have at the at the very beginning when it was, you know, unclear and, and guidance was very unclear about wearing, you know, masks um, as a public health measure. Uh, but, yeah, um, it, it's concerning. I think, um, you know, we definitely have to stay um, very vigilant and, uh, and, and it's going to take... Um, a cohesive kind of public health strategy to keep this thing under control. Before you go away, do you both feel safe at work under current circumstances? We know how chaotic things were in March, starting starting with you, Dr. O'Hare. Do you feel safe? And do you have enough PPE and all those things you do? uh, We're incredibly lucky here in Boston, at least in the hospitals that we work in, Mass General and the Brigham. um, We've never had really had issues with PPE shortages. um, And um, you know, I think everyone working in the hospital right now feels very safe. We, 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 we don't really have any concerns about the spread within the hospital. And, and we also, we would emphasize to patients that if, if, they, if they need to get care, you know, routine uh, medical care, they, they, they should be getting it at mm. this point because we, we know that, um, you know, during the height of the pandemic, it's likely that a lot of um, things were you know, you know, as you sort of alluded to earlier, you know, people are, have been scared to come into the sure. hospital and get the care that they need. So we would encourage people to to, to seek care at this point. It's, it's definitely safe. You feel the same way, Dr. Badu? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd have to say that we're honestly privileged to work at these two institutions, MassGen, Brigham Women's, actually, and Dana-Farber as well, in which, uh, you know, every patient is screened before they come in person. All staff have to fill out basically a form every day before they come in, making sure they don't have symptoms. Uh, we have adequate PPE here. Um, and it's kind of, a, you know, we could talk uh, for so much longer about how it's great being in this system, but it really just highlights healthcare disparities in which other mm-hmm. healthcare systems that are not as well funded or so don't actually have the adequate PPE or don't have the resources to really, you know, do as much testing as we can. Doctors, thank you both. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for having us. Doctors, Maeve O'Hare is a neuromuscular fellow at Mass General Hospital and Brigham and Women's Hospital. Dr. Joshua Badu is a neuro-oncology fellow at Mass General Hospital, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and Brigham and Women's Hospital. Thank you again to both of you, especially for the awareness you're bringing around this term, excited delirium. You know, Jared, I just realized when you congratulated him at the end there for that piece for uh, on excited delirium, I realized I uh, mischaracterized it as extreme delirium. Uh, for virtually the whole uh, interview, so uh, thanks for the correction. Coming up, the U.N. is looking into human rights abuses in the U.S. Charlie Sennett joins us for that and other international headlines on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
Ahead on Boston Public Radio, after decades of strategic engagement with China, President Trump now seems dead set on upending long-standing American policy and igniting a Cold War with one of the world's most powerful superpowers. In his rhetoric and actions, the president has made it clear that he finds Chinese leader Xi to be a bad actor who has it out for the U.S. In a few minutes, we'll hear more about how this might affect American foreign policy long after Trump with WGBH news analyst Charlie Sennett. I'm Jared Bowen, filling in for Marjorie Egan. Since 2007, Tata founder Zurit Orr has crafted a mini-empire of fashionable Parisian coffee houses sprinkled throughout the Boston area. But beneath its glossy veneer, employees of color say Tata, under Orr's leadership, fostered an environment that enabled discriminatory hiring practices. Later, the full story from Boston Globe business columnist Shirley Leung. That and more ahead on Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I am Jim Browdy. Jared Bowen is sitting in for Marjorie. Hello again, Jared Bowen. Hello again, Jim Browdy. So the United States' reputation is already damaged for having the highest number of infections and deaths from COVID-19 anywhere in the world. Now the United Nations is calling out the U.S. for its disproportionate use of force on protesters. Join us online to talk about how this is eroding our leadership role as a democracy and other international headlines is Charlie Sennett. Charlie's a news analyst here at GBH. We also heads up the Ground Truth Project. Hey there, Charlie. How are you? Hey, Jim. Hey, Jared. How are you guys? Good to talk to you. Great, Charlie. Uh, so to add to the surreal nature of everything that's happening around the world and then in this country, as Jim just mentioned, we, we were aware of these protests that have been happening in Portland for about two months now, the anti-racism protests, even seeing the mayor there tear gassed. And now the United, Nates, the United Nations Human Rights Office has intervened asking uh, security forces to limit the use of force. Tell us more about uh, this intervention here. Yeah, you know, it's really distressing if you've been watching the images over the weekend and you think about our country, the United States of America, a country where it suddenly looks on television like we are, uh, you know, some autocratic government in, in the developing world where you have federal troops moving in against peaceful protesters, breaking this up, and you have the United Nations coming out and really talking about a call on the U.S. Uh, police to limit its use of force, saying that there really needs to be room for peaceful protests. When, when did this happen? When did this happen to the United States of America that suddenly we are in a place where we, we, are, we are seen by the world as a place that is limiting uh, freedom of expression, limiting the ability to be out on the streets and to protest, and sending in federal troops against the wishes of the state and city officials in Portland who are saying they don't want them there. Tear gas on the streets, unrest, a, a federal troops marching against the will of the people and their elected officials. I mean, you know, really important for us to put this in as much context as we possibly can. And I just I really appreciate you both wanting to talk about it because I feel like I've watched countries unravel into civil conflict, and I've seen it in in Kosovo and in Bosnia. I've seen it in Northern Ireland. I've seen it in Israel-Palestine. And we've seen it in places around the world where you think it it won't happen, and it does. And and we just all should wake up. We should really wake up. You know, there's that famous book that we've talked about before, Jim, It Can't Happen Here. And 
the reality is we should be very much on our toes. I, I, I think we're a long way from be, being in a civil conflict, but this is a, this is a heavily armed country with a lot of deep divisions that are erupting on the streets. And I just think it's a tinderbox and a moment to be vigilant about our democracy and our rights and protective of them. You know, I, I'm so glad you put that the way you put it, Charlie, because I think Marjorie and I discussed this last week. I just can't remember if we did on the air or if we did it just off the air. I am amazed. I don't have data, but I am amazed that the reaction is not more intense to what's mm-hmm. happening on the West Coast. I think we did discuss it on the air because what I said to her, if this was happening in Boston, do you think, I, I, I just, it's unimaginable if all of a sudden federal troops ended up in, I don't know, downtown crossing or any part of our community, obviously opposed by virtually every leader, would it just be, well, it's another Trumpian oddity, you know, another re-election strategy? This is really serious. UN or no UN, this is really serious stuff. And when you hear in Portland that now the excuse they're using is they're going further and further from the federal courthouse, uh, suggesting that they're going after people who did some damage to the courthouse so they have the jurisdiction to pursue these people. Uh, Having a federal police force, which is essentially what this has become is is a really frightening prospect. And I'm with you. I think people have to wake up. This is not just another uh, Trump uh, oddity kind of thing, you know? This is really precise um, criticism that we're hearing from, from the United Nations. And it's, it's more than criticism. It's the international body of the UN saying that the United States is violating the Geneva Convention and saying that you have to have police forces that are properly and clearly identified. These are federal mm-hmm. agents who are not identifying themselves. In many this cases, is, that's right. This stuff. Uh, arbitrary arrest and detention, a crackdown on the media. These are the things that happen in autocratic regimes. And we're really a, a focus of our report, Democracy Undone, which we did in mm-hmm. the fall. And, you know, I, always, I remember meeting with our editorial team at Ground Truth and wondering, are we overstating this, you know, like, is it really democracy undone? Do we really want to put out a series called The Authoritarian's Playbook that compares Brazil and Hungary and Modi and India and other autocratic regimes that are gaining steam around the world? And do we want to compare that to our own country, the United States of America, under this administration of Donald Trump? And we had to really think, are we overstating the case? Every day I feel like We've stated it pretty accurately. I think that reporting was prescient and important. And I feel like I'm so sad to report that. I would hope we might look on it and think, hey, you you overstated. We haven't overstated in the past. And I think we're really going to be rolling it forward anew um, in the coming months. We're really looking at some of the voting rights issues and election rights and and protests that are unrolling, just rolling out across the country and saying, we need to pay attention to these, and I really would love to invite people to listen to the podcast, Democracy Undone, which you can find on, on thegroundtruthproject.org, because it really is, um, I think it can help provide context for this moment we're in, and maybe help people see that Portland is serious and we need to pay attention. We're speaking with Charlie Sennett. Charlie, that's happening here. 
Tell us about what's happening in China right now. Of course, we know that U.S.-China relations had been very tempestuous even leading up to the pandemic uh, in terms of the trade war. But now they seem to be disintegrating even further. We also saw what happened in Houston where the U.S. shut down the Chinese consulate. They're burning documents in a courtyard. Again, surreal. Feels like stuff we've seen from the past. Of course, history does repeat itself or repeat itself or from you know, some Hollywood film. But, but what is prompting this and, and where are we headed? Yeah, th- this is uh, another development out there in the world that, that is, um, again, it feels like it's part of the playbook of this administration to have um, a dramatic uh, diplomatic dust-up, but without any plan, without any sense of a coherent foreign policy. Um, China's actions in the world are often things that require us to stand up to them. And I, I want to be super clear about that. When they crack down in Hong Kong, when they disrupt their free press, when they do the kind of uh, uh, tactics they use in the streets of Hong Kong to try to break the protests um, and pro-democracy protesters there, it's really important the United States has that voice and says those things. And I know we are all proud when we see that. But it, it, it rings hollow when you have scenes out of Portland that look an awful lot like scenes out of Hong Kong. It, it, looks, it really rings hollow when you have a, a, a president of the United States who calls journalists who try to cover these the enemy of the people when you try to say press freedoms are important in China. We undercut our beliefs. We undercut who we are as a people when we do that. And I think in China, it's really distressing because this is, this is a struggle, a, a kind of U.S.-China relations that are pushing toward a point of no return, I don't think is an overstatement. I, I know the uh, New York Times had a headline to this effect, and it and it it's true. This is becoming a place where we're seeing both sides really dig in. We're in a real economic crisis uh, in the aftermath or the in the in the middle of the of the COVID pandemic, and we're seeing hawkish voices on both sides play to domestic audiences. We're watching Trump crack down on China to play to his domestic audience. We're watching China crack down in the U.S. Uh, to play to its audience. And it's a tit for tat. And with the closing of the uh, consulate in Houston and then us closing uh, a consulate in China and one of the provinces, this is, this is the kind of stuff that gets out of control and undoes decades of hard work and diplomacy for these two countries to learn how to how to work together, how to think of each other as leaders in the world who can steadily improve the lives of both their countries and the people who live in them by working together. Nixon started it, and we're watching Trump erode a lot of that hard work. Yeah, Charlie, I have a couple of questions about this. But for, first, here's uh, Secretary of State Pompeo speaking of the Richard Nixon Library, Yorba Linda, calling on countries around the world to uh, join the U.S. in confronting China. Here's uh, Pompeo. I call on every leader of every nation to start by doing what America has done, to simply insist on reciprocity, to insist on transparency and accountability from the Chinese Communist Party. When it comes to the CCP, I say we must distrust and verify. Here's what I don't understand. You quoted the headline from the New York Times story uh, from, I think it was Saturday, I'm not sure. Officials push U.S.-China relations toward point of no return. And But here's the thing I don't get. We talk a lot on the show about, you know, if Trump is a one-term president, what's the lasting legacy? Well, we would all agree 
that uh, the two justices on the Supreme Court who were men in their young 50s, that's a lasting legacy. Lifetime appointments mm -hmm. to other federal judges, a lasting legacy. But here's what I don't understand. While the strategy, I'm reading from the New York Times, while the strategy has reinforced a key campaign message, some American officials worried Mr. Trump will lose are also trying to engineer irreversible changes, according to people familiar with the thinking. I don't understand what an irreversible change in diplomacy is. I mean, you know, you get out of the Iran uh, nuclear deal, well, you get back into it. You get out of the Paris Climate Accord, you get back into it. I'm not trivializing pulling out of those things. But if, if Trump is hawkish and Pompeo is hawkish, what stops a successor, if he chooses, to try to craft another relationship? What does irreversible mean? China is an enormous ship of state and really dangerous water. And when it, when it starts to turn, you don't turn it back quickly. Uh -huh. this, is a, this is a place that, that measures history in, in centuries, not decades. And, and you know, it's, it's thinking of this as its century. And it is carrying itself in a way in the world that we are right to, to, to object to. You know, they do things around the world that are wrong. They do, they do things in terms of their relationship with our country that are wrong. And I, I always want to hasten to add, I don't want to say that we should just get out of China's way. No, we should stand up to China. But when you do it without a concerted policy, when you do it, right. on the one hand, you're, you're praising Xi, and on the other hand, you're criticizing, and you go back and forth, and there's no coherency, China starts to look at us as irrelevant, and it starts to turn toward its own interests in Africa and throughout Asia and really throughout the world, and increasingly to the Middle East and now to Iran. And it watches the disastrous foreign policy, um, you know, uh, just, just, just the swerving foreign policy, I guess you'd have to say, of this administration, and it sees opportunity, and it's going to pursue it. And I think that's what that lasting damage could mean is that we won't get those years of hard work and diplomacy with China back quickly. It'll take a long time. And I think even if we have a new administration, it's not clear they'll be able to get back to, to the productive work that, that both China and the U.S. were doing together in recent decades. We're talking to Charlie Senate. So, Charlie, I hate to equate one foreign policy venue with another. But is it fair to say that while obviously you're saying what's going on with China is a real negative for the United States, if Donald Trump is able to get the British Open at his golf course in Scotland, would that <laughs> offset the damage done with our relationship with that super? This is one of the most incredible stories. And with any other president would be front page every day, but it's barely a footnote with this president, can you describe what he's doing with our ambassador to the UK, the uh, legendary yeah. Woody Johnson? Right. Woody Johnson is a political appointee, is an ambassador, which is very common in the UK. That, that is one of the plum, the plum jobs. Yeah. And, you know, it's not new. President Obama and President Bush before him, they've all had these political appointees who go there. And, you know, it's very much kind of out in the open that this is a political position. So that, For big donors, say, major contributors, right. that kind of people. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, you know, I've seen how they sort of end up, you know, working with the administration very closely and its goals and making very political statements. So I'm not surprised by some of that. But never before has it been so crass as to have the ambassador to the United Kingdom to, or the Court of St. James, as they would say, 
to actually have that person working on behalf of the President of the United States to help move the British Open to his own private golf resort in Scotland so that he can have the tremendous economic benefits that will come with that move, which will be made on behalf of all of us citizens of the United States through our ambassador there, who's the political appointee of this president. I, there's just never, ever been anything so crass as this. And I don't know how to say it other than that, to say it's really troubling to see the ethical rules and requirements of, of what it is to be a diplomat uh, just shredded by, uh, by, uh, by this ambassador. And, you know, he's from the big pharmaceutical uh, air family. Very he owns the Jets, guy, too, doesn't he? The doesn't he own the New York Jets? Yep. Owns, yeah. Owns the New York Jets. And it's just apparently from those who are working with him, it's just sort of wildly inappropriate all the time. And so in that sense, very much in the spirit of our time with President Trump, he acts like this and he does things that are like nails on a chalkboard if you're a diplomat. And as a result, a lot of the career diplomats that really experienced people who are in that embassy are leaving or have been let go or have been nudged out and we're weaker for it and we don't have the strength of our diplomats out in the world knowing confidently that they have the president behind them to put forward our best interests instead we have a guy who might as well be cutting a corporate deal for him for his own golf resort you know that that's the interesting part i, I guess that. Th this is the peril of having such vacancies throughout the diplomatic corps is that there can be more scrutiny on people like the british ambassador robert wood johnson the fourth who is described as having the trifecta of being racist misogynistic and anti-semitic in terms of his comments and in, in staffers and staff meetings the, the, the scrutiny on on this ambassador as jim say would probably bring anybody else down immediately there would be just this this outcry this scream for him to be pulled from from the UK, but he's been doing this and then joking about serving Trump wine at state dinners. Yeah, and cringeworthy stuff at every turn. And some of it just cringeworthy and some of it really troubling ethically. And, and this golf, you know, this, this deal that he's trying to push through is, is, is right in there uh, along the lines of clear violation of the ethics of diplomacy. And so, you know, again, we need to wake up. I, I feel like I, I, I would like to search for things that could allow us as journalists to be even-handed, to say, hey, you know, there are some good things going here and there are some things that are troubling here. But the, the politics, the domestic politics that Trump seems to be playing right now feels so fearful and like so um, cornered and reactive. It's hard right now not to really want to share with listeners just that these are deeper and deeper red lines that we keep crossing. We just keep crossing them and we keep crossing them and they matter. And it's a time for us as journalists, I think, to keep reminding our listeners of that, even though I really worry about us sounding too shrill, too anti-Trump, and not really understanding that we're in a time where we've got to find more common ground. We've got to work toward that. Um, but I think the common ground we need to work toward is that we have levels of decency and expectations and rule of law that apply to the president of the United States as well. I hope that's where we all come together and don't allow him to cross lines like send federal troops into Portland. Don't allow him to cross lines like have his ambassador in the UK out shilling for him to get his golf course uh, to get the British Open. Like this, these lines are where we need to 
come together. We need to stand strong. Well, Charlie, By the way, did you hear also the thing you left out of your retelling of the story is he also asked Woody Johnson to ensure that in every cup on each of the 18 holes, there'd be an empty can of Goya beans so that when you hit the ball into the whatever. In any case, we're talking to Charlie Sennett. That was not very funny, but I couldn't resist. We're talking to Charlie Sennett uh, from the uh, Ground Truth uh, Project. You're talking about press freedom all the time. Charlie, and we've spoken about the situation in Hungary uh, quite a bit before, yeah. but uh, press freedom and Hungary don't go in the same sentence uh, at all. No, they don't. H Hungary was one of the countries we looked at in, in our series, Democracy Undone, and, and it really was it's interesting now to think the reporter really went deep into how um, this authoritarian leader, the prime minister, Viktor Orban, has tried to really control the media through corporate takeovers or getting cronies who will take over the media and control it for him, buy up media. And this is what's really happening in a very dramatic way in Hungary. Um, one, of the, one of the leading newspapers there is in Budapest, and it's, um, it's the name of the news organization is index.hu, for those of you who might want to go and check it out. Um, but they, they're, they're prominent, they're independent voice for a long time, and um, their editor, who's beloved, has been sacked. And he warned, as he was shown the exit, that uh, the, the independence of this news organization, the independence of media in Hungary is really under attack, and it's, it's really threatened. So we, we saw this sign of solidarity. The members of the staff uh, stood up to this and signed a petition and are doing mass resignations now at this news site uh, as a way to defend their press freedoms. And, you know, this is... This is not just happening in Hungary. There's, there's, a, there's a major undercutting of press freedoms in the Philippines. We saw Maria Reza, who's the head of Rappler and a former CNN correspondent, being put on trial and convicted. We've seen um, crackdowns on press freedoms, especially in India under Modi. You're seeing time and time again this sort of Hindu nationalism rising up in the media and in the way it's being covered and the way the press is being bludgeoned away from its great traditions of independence in India. We're seeing this time and time again in Egypt, and you can just keep going around the country thinking about where press freedom is being eroded. And really, candidly, there's a lot of places that it's being eroded right here in the United States, not only from a president who is willing to attack individual members of the media, but also from a financial system that's undercutting our own journalism here. And there's a real deep crisis in local news around the country that we don't feel as much in Boston and in Massachusetts because we have some, we're lucky, we're really blessed to have strong and vital local news organizations. But in so many corners of America, local news is dying. And I think while we look to issues like the crackdown on press freedom in Hungary and we look around the world, I don't want us to forget to look right here at home and look at how we have to be protective of our own institutions here, too. Speaking of uh, local press, there are rumors circulating that your operation is a finalist for a, to say the least, a very serious grant from the MacArthur Foundation around the whole issue of local press disappearance. Am I letting something out that I shouldn't have or no? No, it's it's official. Thanks, thanks for seeing that, Jim. What's thanks the deal? This is, we're really... 
Well, we're really honored. We are one of the finalists in a, in a, in a really intense global competition for what's called 100 and Change by the MacArthur Foundation. And it's for one organization that has a scalable and sustainable model to try to correct a systemic problem that really needs correcting, There's some global issue that we think we can really have impact on. And um, for us, that is Report for America, our new program, where we try to really go at the issue of restoring local journalism from the ground up, serving communities where there are news deserts. And we're a finalist. So this is a $100 million grant on the line. Uh, we're one of six finalists. And I think Jesus. it's humbling, to say the least. It's, it's incredibly exciting. When we think about this, this is, this is where we are in this. We have no idea if we will win but we are honored to be in this shortlist because it means the issue of the crisis in local news in America is now seen by the philanthropic community as on par with, the, with huge issues like homelessness, huge issues like the health or ill health of our oceans around the world or the need to eradicate malaria, these, these daunting global challenges that are the work of the other organizations that are finalists. Um, are, are incredibly important issues. And I'm really, I guess, um, just I think it's so important that right now we're seeing that that crisis in local news in our country, the way truth is being eroded on a daily basis in our own country, is now seen as an issue that we need to attack, we need to solve. And if Report for America is going to keep going and keep being trying to be part of solving this problem and part of the solution, but if we were lucky enough to win this grant, it would be a game changer to say the least. That sounds small. Uh, this would be a chance for us to really help restore journalism around the country. So we're keeping our fingers crossed. And we're also respectful of all the other organizations who are finalists and the important work they do. When do you hear uh, about this, Troy? It's a nine-month process for us. Um, we will go now into a real uh, important phase where the team uh, – really led by my co-founder of Report for America, Steve Waldman, is mm -hmm. leading a team of really talented people looking at how do we really share our business plan? How do we look at how we would scale this up and how could we be of service uh, in newsrooms that are struggling around the country? How can we do that? What would it look like to really take it to scale? So we have a lot of work to do in the next nine months and we have just have a lot of work as an organization to do to be worthy of this and so we're going well, to be even be in that group really is hard. a colossal tribute to the work you and your colleagues are doing so congratulations and good luck charlie Sen. it's great to talk to you thanks for your time thanks jim thank you thanks Jared. yeah early congratulations we'll, we'll keep our fingers crossed for you thanks. absolutely charlie Sennett is a news analyst here at wgbh where he also heads up the ground truth project well, coming up, a programming note at 12.30 or sometime uh, within the next few minutes or within the next half hour, Governor Baker will be giving a coronavirus press conference. If you want to hear that, we are streaming it at WGBHnews.org. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Jared Bowen is sitting in for Marjorie. He was a showman's showman who turned everyday chit-chat into must-see TV. He elevated the game show to primetime television, setting a Guinness World Record for most hours on camera along the way. Regis Philbin, as you know, has died at age 88. 
If only he could have given himself a lifeline. Joining us to remember him and to go over other TV news is Bob Thompson. Bob's the founding director of the Blyer Center for TV and Popular Culture and a trustee professor of television and popular culture at the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse. Hello there, Bob Thompson. Hello, how are you two doing? We're excellent. Thank you for asking. Great. Hi, Bob Thompson. I, th I think this really does demonstrate the power of television. You have Olivia de Havilland die the same day as Regis Philbin, but Regis Philbin just, it seemed so much harder because of the fact probably that he not only was in, in our homes every single day uh, through his talk show, but for, for decades and decades and decades he was part of our lives. For generations, I think we can say. Uh, grandfather remembers uh, uh, when he was the sidekick on Joey Bishop. Um, <clears throat> uh, others remember Regis and Kathy Lee and then Regis and Kelly. Uh, and then, of course, uh, with Who Wants to Be a Millionaire for a while, he was the number one, two, three, and four highest-rated programs of really? the week when that was playing uh, um, uh, multiple times a week. And then if that wasn't enough, he was the one that launched the first season of America's Got Talent, which has been year, summer after summer after summer the highest-rated show of the, uh, uh, of the summer. And if you're uh, flipping through the dial, as I was yesterday, um, you stumble upon him on things like Seinfeld. He, uh, uh, Kramer, when he makes his coffee table book, goes on Regis and Kathy Lee uh, during an episode of that. So uh, he really did penetrate. And as you pointed out, as opposed to Olivia de Havilland, who was a movie star, uh, which we would go to the theater and see every now and again. Regis was in, in our homes, as you just said, day after day after day. You know, it's hard to pick a clip, but here's what we did choose. This is a compressed version of Regis Philbin and Donald Trump performing oh, Rudolph the no. Red-Nosed Reindeer. This is on Late Night with Letterman. This is in 2005. Then one foggy Christmas Eve, the Trumpster came to say, Okay, don't hold that against Regis. Now, you know, I know I have when mentioned... Regis sings, you'll go down in history. Boy, <laughs> was he ever right about that. <laughs> you know, I know I've mentioned this segment about a hundred times to you, so my apologies. One of his finest moments that we've discussed, Bob, with Marjorie, was when he was one of the two guests on uh, the uh, Letterman show when it was the first show to return post 9-11. And I was, uh, as I've said to you, I was not a Regis fan before... And I thought, oh, my God, what a horrible choice. How perfect was he for the moment in terms of blending the seriousness of the moment with his great joke about sending Kathy Lee over to take on the Taliban and this thing will be over in a minute? He was brilliant that night, wasn't he? He was. And we have talked about this before, but it's worth talking about again because it really was perhaps his most uh, uh, moment of greatest gravitas. Because uh, we, we remember that uh, uh, David Letterman was the very first talk show host to come back, right. uh, late night talk show host, uh, only six days after 9-11, so not even a full week uh, uh, afterwards. And there was a whole sense back then as to whether that genre was even going to work. Mm -hmm. And Regis turned out to be an absolutely ingenious choice because he, he was already, and for most of his career, he really straddled that line between showbiz guy and self-parody. 
And that seemed like right. it would not work in the somber mode of a first episode after a, an enormous national uh, uh, tragedy. Uh, but Regis pulled it off absolutely beautifully and respectfully and tastefully and funny and everything else. Yeah, it was very hard to, to see that news yesterday. But so, Bob Thompson, moving on, what is your worst of the week as the baseball season launches? <laughs> Yes, and, and a lot of people disagree with me about this, but I think the fake crowd noises, the fake crowds, the fake stuff, I think, really is uh, not appropriate, and I'm not even sure it's necessary uh, for baseball. We got our first look on uh, opening night Friday, um, and in the beginning, the uh, uh, game, um, the first game, what was it, the Nationals and the Yankees, had fake crowd noises, didn't have any cutouts, as I recall. And then the uh, game after that, uh, we had the cutouts behind home plate. But then when Fox got into the game on uh, uh, Saturday, they not only had fake uh, crowd noise, but they had digital <laughs> audio, or, uh, fans as well. And, you know, sometimes they'd be, the digital fan would be there in the outfield when the home run would be hit but the digital fans would mysteriously all disappear uh, when they did the replay of the, uh, of the home run. So they bounced in and out. And so the, the idea was, okay, so what's the big deal? And I, I think the big deal is that I know baseball games and covering sports is not news, but it's somewhere between news and entertainment. And important things do happen uh, during games that become national, uh, national news. The 1972 Olympics would be the most obvious uh, thing. But taking a knee, for example, that has become a major part of the civic conversation. And when you start covering games and putting fake stuff in, um, you know, what are the demographics of those crowds? And by the way, when the Star Spangled Banner was played, none of those cutouts stood up during it. Ah, that's a good point. Well, we'll take our listeners to half of what you just described. Obviously, we can't show people what it looked like, but on Saturday, the Cubs played the Brewers at an empty Wrigley Field, but this is what it sounded like on Fox Sports. He's just watching that thing. It hits the fair pole, foul pole, whatever you want to call it, but it's to the World Series. Correct. Uh -oh. drills one. You know, Bob, when I'm hearing that, uh, I totally agree with your, you know, it's part news, part uh, entertainment, whatever. So I guess that's what's going to answer my point to you is you, Marty, and I have talked ad nauseum through the years about laugh tracks. And I hate them. I hate them. And they sound 10 times phonier than that sounded in that clip that Jared just played. But I guess what separates a laugh track from what we just heard is the fact that one is alleged, you know, is real and news-ish. Is that w what you'd say? Yeah, right. That's the distinction I'm making. And I, I think we would probably miss it if they took these uh, uh, crowd no noises out. We're so used to listening to yeah. um, uh, uh, sports uh, or watching sports events with crowd noises. And by the way, this is not the first time they faked them. When radio used to cover uh, a lot of baseball games, they wouldn't even send the people out to the park. The people would be getting the ticker tape. Uh, uh, Ronald Reagan, right? right? Didn't Ronald push... Reagan do Cubs games or something? Yes, yeah. I, I, think, I think that's right. And then they'd push a sound effect for a bat hitting a ball, and then they'd mm -hmm. have crowd noises. The whole game was fake uh, uh, in some of those <laughs> cases. Well, you... um, 
but but yeah, it is it it is. I think the fact that this is an actual, I have no problem with people laughing on a laugh track on the love boat, even though they'd have to be in. in uh, we've talked about this before in uh, lifeboats if they were. Uh, <laughs> there was really an audience. Um, but I think sports is a different uh, yeah. a different kind of thing. By the way, those fake la- fake laughs were from a uh, official M- Major League Baseball video game. So we've actually got a video game laughing in a real game. Well, you, you realize when you hear this, picturing an empty stadium, uh, that uh, the audio guy can essentially create the whole atmosphere, the whole energy, the whole mood of the stadium. Does the audio guy get to decide when he wants booze to, to change the whole tenor of a game? I mean, it, 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 there's a lot of power there. Yeah, that's a very interesting uh, uh, question because they decided there would not be booze. So if you go through that, you'll notice there uh, aren't any. So they do oh, limit that. that to... Uh, uh, to some extent, but um, you know, part of what this season is all about is that there is no crowds to experience a baseball game in the era of coronavirus is to experience without those, uh, without those things. And one one solution uh, would be they wouldn't have to have them in these huge venues. I, th- I think isn't Fox doing the Field of Dreams game in Iowa, like in August? Is that true? To go to that. A, a cornfield and play a game in uh that's kind of a clever idea then you don't have to worry that the thing doesn't look or sound like a regular game because it isn't a, a yeah but the game. only problem is you have to go to iowa that's a real well, problem yeah. i think that'll be the first <laughs> major league game that i read that will ever have been played in iowa that doesn't seem possible wow. but i can't imagine what else it would have been so bob thompson what's your best of the week well this started on hbo back in uh, june and i've been watching it uh, steadily and uh, this past episode, it's, it's gone, it's 12 episodes long, and the seventh one is played, so there are five more. Um, uh, I've decided that this is really one of the best things on TV uh, this summer. And it's I May Destroy You. Mm. Um, Michaela Cole, uh, it was a BBC show, wrote every episode, directs about nine out of the 12, executive producer produced it, created it, um, and it's about uh, uh, surviving and coming to grips uh, uh, with, a, with a rape, and there are other sexual assaults that uh, other characters uh, have in it. And it's subtle, it's disturbing, it's challenging, it's beautifully written and acted, and it's really like nothing else on television. Wow. Well, to give people a sense, here's a clip of I May Destroy You, which people can watch now on HBO. How you doing, babe? You want to chat? Chat. You want to cry? You can cry. Because, I mean, I don't know how healthy it is to be here any longer. You know what I mean? Because I'm like, we've been here lingering for an hour. So I'm like, let's, let's transport Arabella out of the police station into an environment that sparks joy. I need to leave. Yeah, yeah, cool. Go, go, I'm your taxi. Destination, self-care. I'm so interested in what this show looks like. I was reading about how its creator essentially created mood boards to, and, and dove into film history to, to create very evocative images as the series was created. Yeah, you're right, and apparently went through uh, like almost 200 drafts. I mean, this, this thing has been meticulously uh, uh, put together uh, frame by frame by frame, and it, it does pay off. There's all kinds of uh, references to things. But at the same time, it's not, the, it's not like a lifetime movie of, of surviving uh, sexual assault. It, it's, it, it actually manages to be funny. It goes into all kinds of other developments of the characters besides the main theme uh, that holds it all together. 
Um, and I had never seen Michaela uh, Cole uh, perform before. I don't think I've ever seen any of the uh, work she's done, but uh, she, she's a, uh, a real presence. I've heard great things about this, too. I can't wait. Speaking of can't wait, uh, it's been what seems like forever since uh, Chris, Chris Matthews left uh, uh, MSNBC. And the question was, who would succeed? And we now know Joy Reid is being elevated to prime time. And there are not many African-American women in those spots. In fact, I think none in uh, prime time evening. Is that not correct I there, Bob? Think that's, I think that's correct. Now, Joy Reid, of course, had a, had a uh, uh, um, daytime show on the weekend yeah. uh, that she'd been doing for MSNBC for quite some time. But... Uh, since Chris, Matthew le- Chris Matthews left in uh, March, right before the whole coronavirus story broke, they'd just been putting in, uh, rotating MSNBC's people in that slot. And now Joy Reid's got the readout, not my favorite title for it. But it's, um, if you know Joy Reid from the weekend, it's a Joy Reid uh, uh, show, uh, no question about it. And it's also a typical cable TV primetime uh, opinion show. It's very much uh, uh, an opinion program. But as you pointed out, Joy Reid is a different voice than we're used to hearing in primetime 24-hour cable, and it's uh, nice to uh, uh, it's nice to have that voice. You know, uh, I have to say, Lawrence O'Donnell, who obviously is at the same station, is always very kind to Marjorie and me when we're in New Hampshire, primarily because he's a Dorchester kid and his mother was a huge fan of Marjorie's column at the Herald. He introduced this to Joy Reid, and I interviewed her for television a few times up there. She was terrific. I mean, while I had seen her a few times on the weekends, uh, she is really, really, uh, I think, a an insightful analyst. And obviously she had to overcome what a lot of people thought might be a career ender a couple of years ago when there were these... Uh, homophobic, I think, tweets that she said at the time were a function right. of hacking, which, of course, we've heard before in other contexts. Uh, but essentially, I think by saying this is not who I am and not quite taking ownership of it, I think that may be too strong, and reaching out to people like Rachel Maddow, who apparently has uh, forgiven her, even though she said it was painful, the original comments, she has survived and obviously prospered, which you don't see that much in the television industry no that was a and and the fact that i had almost forgotten that chapter demonstrates how successfully that was uh uh, managed Uh, if you go back and look at uh uh the history of trevor noah there's a similar uh uh, kind of thing uh that uh, that seldom gets talked about joy reed was here on campus a couple of uh years ago matter of fact it was um she came to one of my Tuesday screenings at oh, home. Really? It was the day after uh, Martin Luther King Day and uh, uh, did a really compelling uh, presentation to those uh, uh, to my Tuesday students. So anyway, I think it's a good addition to the MSNBC lineup. However, most of 24-hour cable primetime is something I'm finding my tolerance for is getting lower and lower. As the Wait, wait, why is that? Because of how repetitive it is? or what? Well, yeah, repetitive and just the, uh, uh, the, the level of sophistication has been completely compromised yeah. uh, by the dramaturgy of, you know, getting people. Uh, you know, now it's a cliche to say cable is nothing but people shouting at each other, but you think back to Chris Matthews, and Chris Matthews is starting to seem a little subtle by comparison. <laughs> 
Well, I wonder how much th- this is a change of things to come, given that NBC has a new chairman at the at the network for for NBC News, uh, formerly of Telemundo. So you would have to think that you know somebody who's been with that kind of background is going to be looking at a diversity of voices and storytelling, and I guess to your point, how those stories are going to be told, how people are performing on air. Right. There is, I th- with the diversity issue, I think there are so many different forces now uh, afoot to finally begin to start uh, not only asking those questions, which they've been asking forever, but actually to start casting and hiring accordingly. So uh, we talked about Regis Philbin setting the all-time record for number of hours on our television screens. Alex Trebek cannot be far behind, uh, and Jeopardy is now... You know, it's amazing to me. The part of what always appealed to me about game shows, and I love game shows when I was younger. I don't watch much now. Was not only playing them, but the suspense of it. When it's a rerun, if you had said to me, we're going to run reruns of a game show, unless it was just to see old television, like I'm sure you do in a class, obviously you do in a class, I would say it would evoke, there'd be no ratings, but apparently... Jeopardy is going right through the roof with reruns? Yeah. Okay, so last week they did From the Vault, and they did from things the from vault. the first uh, uh, decade, including on Monday, uh, the September 10th, 1984 debut episode of Trebek's uh, oh, really? new rebooting of it. So we got the, his very first, wow. uh, and then the second one was like in, in second week. And all kinds of things that we either never knew or forgot uh, you used to be able to do the buzzer whenever you wanted to, so people would buzz the mm. second the thing went on, and then if the, they would hope that they were right. Also, you couldn't uh, uh, if you want one more than seventy-five thousand dollars, which seldom ever happened. Anything over seventy-five had to be given to your favorite charity. Oh, really, uh, which I don't think is the case uh, uh, anymore. Uh, so it was fun to go back and uh, watch those things uh, again. And as for the ratings, the overall. Ratings were up 13% from last year at this time when they were doing new episodes. So the reruns are up 13% overall. But among people, and this is the statistic I find fascinating, among viewers under 35, which means viewers who were not born when that episode played, the ratings last week were up 109%, over doubled. Um, So go figure that. Well, I, oh, and by the way, uh, Alex Trebek was, or I'm sorry, Regis Philbin, tonight they're doing, uh, this week, last week was from the first decade of Jeopardy, this week is uh, um, uh, Best of Celebrity Jeopardy, and I believe, and this was scheduled before uh, he died, I believe Regis is on tonight's episode oh, with really? Carol Burnett, if I'm not uh. mistaken. Oh, my goodness. Well, I, th- I think this only sends a message to Jim and to me that we could just take the rest of the summer off and just rerun our shows from years ago <laughs> if they're going to do as well as the, the work we're trying to do now, I guess. Don't tempt me. <laughs> By the way, two of our colleagues here, Kara uh, uh, and uh, um, uh, who was the other was person? Was it Edgar? Edgar were, had, were on Jeopardy. And I have to say, talking to them about both the tension and the excitement of getting on the show is really, it's, it's, I mean, obviously it's huge. It's been so much a part of our lifetime. So what are we watching this uh, coming week there, Bob Thompson? Well, the Olympics would be going now, or they... Oh, that's right, this week, right? Right, if if they hadn't been uh, put off a year. So if you're um, uh, looking for stuff to watch that's uh, Olympic-oriented, Peacock has put on a 24-hour channel. You go to Peacock, it's an online channel, 
that's playing old documentaries, old footage, all kinds of stuff. Uh, and depending on when you stumble onto it, some of it is, uh, is really interesting. There's also the Olympic Channel, depending on what cable or satellite service you get, uh, whether you even, uh, even get that. Uh, HBO, and I'm going to talk about that next week, has got a documentary coming out um, called the, uh, the Weight of Gold, which is fascinating. We'll talk about that next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you get the Criterion Channel, which is kind of pricey, the classic movie channel, I think it's $9.99 a month, uh, they've put up uh, Kan Ichikawa's um, Tokyo Olympiad, which was the last time the Olympics were in uh, Tokyo. Uh, in 1964, and is considered one of the great sports films of all time. So you you can find Olympics uh, even in Tokyo if you want to. And you have a particular favorite for the road to Tokyo? Uh, Right. That's a whole channel, so it's not a particular show. But if you you get Peacock, and Peacock is free unless you buy one of its uh, uh, tiers, um, you can go on that, and they're playing, again, 24 hours. They're just streaming all kinds of... Uh, Olympic programming, so that's that's the easiest way to get it. Well, we certainly love the competitions, but I think they, they've the the networks have trained us well over the years because we love these stories and and these documentary style, uh, you know, deeply shot, richly told stories. Here's sound from the opening moments of one of Peacock's original documentaries. Uh, it's called Kamome. You can catch uh, that on the Road to Tokyo stream that you just mentioned. What would it take to prove just how much we all have in common? to show how the very thing that divides us can bring us together and help us heal. For the people of two towns, an ocean apart, answers came in the most unlikely way. Sounds like we're almost getting the best part of the Olympics, even though the competitions aren't happening this year. You know, you're right. Most of the Olympics have been those up-close-and-personal oh, kinds yeah. of things anyway. So uh, uh, th- this, is, uh, this is all the, all the drama without the actual competition. Bob, it's a pleasure, as always. Thanks so much for uh, calling in. Pleasure's mine. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bob Thompson joins us every week. He's the founding director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture and a trustee professor of TV and pop culture at the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse. Well, coming up, Reverends Irene Monroe and Emma Price join us for another edition of All Revved Up. They're next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Jared Bone sitting in for Marjorie. And before we get uh, to our next segment, we started the day talking about the governor's uh, travel order, saying that starting August 1st, 14-day quarantine if you come from out of state, even if you started here, unless you have a uh, negative finding in a test that was administered in the last three days, or you're from Hawaii, New York, New Jersey, or one of the New England states. In a few minutes ago, if you listen to it, on GBH streaming, uh, the governor had a press conference and expanded his Stop the Spread testing initiative, which is intended for to expand testing in communities particularly hard hit. First round of eight cities was places like Chelsea, Everett, places like that. Today he added eight communities, Agawam, Brockton, Methuen, Randolph, Revere, Springfield, Taunton, and Worcester. If anything else comes from the governor's office, you'll hear about it here. But yesterday, John Lewis crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge for the last time. 
Joining us to talk about his final crossing, the loss of another civil rights leader, Mimi Jones, and more are Reverends Irene Monroe and Emmett Price. They join us every week for All Revved Up. Reverend Monroe is a syndicated religion columnist, the Boston Voice for Detour's African-American Heritage Trail, and a visiting researcher in the Religion and Conflict Transformation Program at BU School of Theology. Emmett G. Price III is a professor and executive director of the Institute for the Study of Black Christian Experience at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. They're the hosts of the All Revved Up podcast. Irene, Emmett, welcome back. How are you both? Hey, glad well, to hear from you. Pleasure. Hey, Jarrett. Hi, <laughs> Irene. It's always great to speak with you. So I just want to start. We have this image, I think, that we'll have with us for so long of seeing the procession yesterday on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, uh, the state troopers there welcoming him, then escorting Congressman Lewis such a contrast to what history brought us 55 years before, the, the, the terror that he experienced on that bridge 55 years before. What was it like for both of you to see that moment? I cried all through the ceremony from beginning to end uh, yesterday. I, and, and, and it started with a sense of joy and then, and then of sadness. The joy for me was that here was a civil rights icon who was in a horse-drawn carriage and wasn't assassinated. Because the last time I saw something as moving as yesterday's procession, it was MLK being in, in, in a casket. He lived his life. That was joy. And the other joy was it's a hopeful joy and that the bridge will be named after him as, as well as that the civil right, well, the voting right bill will hopefully the Senate will pass it. But the sadness was that after he crossed that bridge, I said there are many more bridges for us to cross. Um, to get the kind of, you know, full citizenship in terms of what we see as the American dream. But I tell you what was also hopeful was the onlookers along the parade route that said as the, as the casket was, you know, processing across the bridge, they were saying, we got this. And, and it just moved me because it said that the, the struggle continues. Emmett? Yeah, it was challenging for me. I, I will admit that I, I watched it on recording uh, simply because I do lead a local uh, congregation on Sundays. And for me, it was challenging because for all the reasons that Irene is hopeful, um, I am also hopeful as being a divine optimist. But I'm somewhat challenged by the fact that even in his death, we're still relying on him to lead people across a bridge. And, and the challenge for me is that over the many years of his role uh, as a congressional leader, and he was certainly that an elder states gentleman. He took annual trips to that bridge and led bipartisan groups across the bridge, trying to, you know, kind of get folks to work together. And we're not there yet. And so even in his death, we're still relying on him to lead people across the bridge. And that, that saddens me. And by the way, I, I'm sure no. we mentioned this last week, and I, I assume most listeners know this without our prompting, is that not only is there this overwhelming uh, uh, a tidal wave of support for changing the name of the bridge to John Lewis is not just because of who John Lewis was. It's obviously also because of who Edmund Pettus was, a member of the Klan, and beyond that. So what is the status of that? Do either of you know? You stated it like it was a given, Irene. Is it a given? No, it's not a given, but I think that it will be more impetus now that a lot of people watched yesterday's ceremony uh -huh. that, yes, we need to do this. And it need not it need not to be just symbolic by naming the bridge after him, but following up 
with the John Lewis voting rights bill. Mm. So, so that's that's what I'm hoping for. I, Emmett, I, I, I just disagree with you for a moment in terms of that we're looking for John Lewis, or you know, or John Lewis figure to conti- you know continue to lead the movement because again, the onlookers were young folks, a lot of them, and the, and the cameras zoomed in that said, we got this. And, and, and some of those folks, as the uh, reporter was, was stating, were folks of the Black Lives Movement, because one of the things I think I said last week that Seek, that not Seek Sick, was the, 19, was the sort of Black Lives Virgin, you know, uh, well, of Black Lives Matter. So I, I'm very optimistic, and I'm not the optimist, so, which is really interesting. <laughs> I did think this. I did just, I cried again, because when you sing We Shall Overcome, I remember me being that little girl in church and asking folks, you know, are we going to overcome? Are we going to overcome to see that we're still fighting for, for voting rights? But I had a Jesus moment, and that Jesus moment was this. I really felt that, you know, Jesus would say to Lewis, well done, good and faithful servant. That is fantastic just to think about because I, one of the things I was concerned about on learning of his death was that he wouldn't get the due he might get in a time outside the pandemic, uh, that, that we wouldn't be able to, to honor him that way. But that hasn't happened. It's just as you described, Irene, when you see those young faces, you see the people who have come out safely. You see, uh, as I'm actually watching right now on NBC News, as uh, he's proceeding through Washington uh, to go to the National Museum of African-American History and Culture, uh, that this country has turned out in a major way to be able to honor him, even in a time where it might be more challenging. Oh, yeah, I agree, because his graphic novel, The March, that won a book award, he wrote it specifically for a younger generation. And so we no longer, I I have to say this, that the age of the civil rights hero is long, is gone now. And, And that master narrative that, you know, the only movers and shakers to affect change for for African American are, are, are just men. So I'm hopeful with the Black Lives Matter movement being non-hierarchical, and it comprises uh, well the founders are, are queer women, but it comprises of chapters that are led by various groups of people. That I'm very hopeful by the kind of wide you know reach that it has. You know, speaking of it, not just being men, Emmett uh, Mimi Jones may not be as well known as uh, John Lewis was, but she clearly left her mark in a big-time way, both locally and nationally. She obviously has passed as well. Tell people about Mimi Jones. Yeah, Mimi was just a phenomenal uh, woman who, um, at 13, was arrested for the first time down in uh, Albany, Georgia, um, as young protesters who were with Dr. King. And she would often tell the story of how when Dr. King was released from jail, he came back and visited the young people and shook each one of their hands and asked them if they were doing okay. And then a few years later, she was down in uh, St. Augustine, Florida, with a pastor as they were uh, uh, participating in the St. Augustine movement there. And, and, And some of the protesters decided to to uh, essentially get into a pool that was whites only. And when she was in there, uh, the, the, the hotel keeper poured uh, uh, acid in there. Um, yeah. And then as she mm. was being burned in the pool, mm. uh, the police jumped in with their clothes on and pulled the young uh, black children out and arrested them. And so she has this phenomenal way of telling stories 
But the most important thing about Mimi, and she was well-read, uh, she was just a phenomenal activist here in, in Roxbury, long-time uh, Roxbury resident, was a phenomenal participant mm-hmm. in St. Catherine's Drexel Parish, where I was just with her um, on King, uh, uh, oh, really? King Celebration Day this year, and she introduced me as the speaker. And she was oh, one God. who was such an inspiring encourager. If she ever, if she saw you, she'd ask you, how are you doing? What are you working on? And how can yeah. I be of assistance to you? She would always encourage, no matter how old or how, how accoladed you were, how many mm-hmm. credentials. She was just one who was so kind and took so much care and trained up all of us who are activists, who are advocates. And it didn't matter what your, what your concern was or even what your belief was. She really exuded what it meant to treat others as you would have them treat you. How did she? Yeah, she was. Yeah. How did she? She was a great woman. I was just going to ask how she, she, these moments that we see in photographs, not unlike John Lewis on the Pettus, Edmund Pettus Bridge in that just awful photograph of Mimi Jones. How did she incorporate that into what she would talk about um, as she would keep the civil rights movement going forward? Yeah, I mean, she she would do that. She would talk about it. And that's the thing, the courage to tell her story and to stand in her own truth and to not use it. See, the thing about Mimi, Mimi was so loving. And you would take a woman who had every right to be pissed and frustrated and angry. And she was just a, I mean, you couldn't walk up to her and not hug her. I mean, she was just so loving. And, And that's what exuded and drew people to her. And then she never sought the spotlight. She never saw the spotlight. You can be in the room with Mimi, and if you didn't know who she was, you really didn't know who she was, except for the fact that everybody was gravitating towards her. So she told her story, told it with great courage. Yes, you know, the that's a great description of a woman. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Darren. The interesting thing about the women in in the civil rights movement, too many of them are really the unsung, really, uh, icons of the civil rights movement. I mean, I think, um, Emmett, you always talk about Clovet, you know, Coven, but there's, you know, Ella mm-hmm. Baker, there's Fannie Lou Hamer, who says I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And, you know, Diane Nash is alive. And one of the things that constantly gets lost here, and I, and that's why I say that now that John has died, and I don't say that in a, in, in a, in a joyous way, that master narrative can, the, the rigidity around the master narrative about the civil rights movement will now open up and you will see the profound impact women had in organizing and where the men led. Because one of the things that constantly gets lost, even when we get to MLK Day, we talk about I have a dream speech, not understanding that Prathia Hall was the inspiration for that particular speech that, that, King, that King gave. So and, and Mimi was just amazing, but I find... All the folks, uh, the women and men, when it comes to talking about the civil rights movement, they all are humble. And I think, and and I'd like to know what you think about this, Emmett, I think it has a lot to do with the politics of respectability, that, 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 that they were always going to be dignified in the face of the kind of suffering and, and, and assault on their lives. Yeah, you know, I don't know if it's so much the politics of respectability as it is a self-pride and the fact that mm. they saw mm. what they saw, but then a John Lewis was able to walk across the Edmund Pettus Bridge with a President Barack Obama, that a Mimi Jones was able to sit with, you know, whomever she had prayed about before and had hoped would come and take the baton from all the work that she had been doing. And so there's a sense of gratitude 
for the younger generations who are coming up and who clearly honor uh, them. So I, so I think it's a sense of pride. It may be politics and respectability. You know, clearly we have been taught to not let, quote unquote, them see us sweat, right, or not let them yeah. see us with yeah. our hair down per se. So perhaps that is a part of it. But, you know, again, yeah. just, just one of many phenomenal women uh, who has yes. gone on too soon. And it's a sense of community. We're we talking to Reverend Emmett. I was just going to say we live very differently as African Americans today than than certainly you know our our foremothers and fathers here they were they were still in Jim Crow America so the sense of community was much more tight and there and when when Emmett says there really wasn't that kind of you know here's the star and here isn't the star because it, it really was about whatever anyone does helps the cause and so if you're the first to get over the bridge it's the whole idea of lifting as we climb. Talking to Reverend Ira Monroe and Remet, uh, Reverend Emmett Price. Speaking of uh, women activists, here is uh, just a piece, and if people have not listened to the whole speech, you should. Here is Rever- uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez during a speech in the House criticizing another representative, Ted Yoho, for evoking his wife and daughter as a defense for his uh, verbal attack on her. I am someone's daughter, too. My father thankfully, is not alive to see how Mr. Yoho treated his daughter. My mother got to see Mr. Yoho's disrespect on the floor of this house towards me on television. And I am here because I have to show my parents that I am their daughter and that they did not raise me to accept abuse from men. In addition to, I'm sure people are up to speed on this, in addition to the uh, abusive uh, verbal behavior, he also used a horrible language towards her. Then he lied about it. And unfortunately for him, a reporter from The Hill heard him use the expression effing B word uh, about her. And then his apology was completely a non-apology. However, some good things happened. An organization called Bread for the World put out a statement saying, uh, and he's on the board, Yoho, this uh, behavior is not reflective of the respect and compassion that Jesus calls on us to exhibit every single day. So Yoho is hanging by a thread on one hand, and Ocasio-Cortez continues to elevate her standing in the community. Starting with you, Emmett, <laughs> what did you think of Bread for the World's behavior, and what did you think of Ocasio-Cortez's speech? Yeah, I think Bread for the World is probably going to be one of the first of a number of folks who disassociate or divest uh, from, uh, from from Yoho. I think that um, Ocasio-Cortez, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, uh, did exactly what uh, Michelle Obama um, said, that when they go low, we go high. I think she was yeah. certainly uh, did it in yeah. such savvy and with such, you know, um, just brilliance, um, just phenomenal. She, she, she's a hero for the week, yeah. clearly. Yeah, she really is. Yeah, she she takes it. I mean, you know, uh, Alexandria, you know, Cortez, she was just wonderful in that she clapped back depicting the cultural sort of uh, of uh, the culture of toxic masculinity that lacks, you know, impunity. So I was just very happy to see this. But I think the hopefulness is that her, what was her backup was that now there'll be a systemic change because although he represents he's he's on the board for bread for the world they weren't having it because 
one of the things that they were doing, because people worried, well, was this going to be cancel culture? But no, it's about accountability, acknowledging that even if you had good intentions, which I doubt, that you have to take responsibility for the outcome and acknowledge the harm, you know, and the pain that, that, that that you inflicted. And so... So I loved it when she says, no, I don't expect, you know, him to give me an apology because if he did, he would have. But I appreciate what Brett, you know, for the world did. Yeah, I'll tell you, Irene, I've known you a long time. You are not a woman who is prone to do understatement. But saying that I doubt that he had good intentions is maybe the understatement of the decade, particularly coming from... uh, Coming from you, we're talking to Irene Monroe and uh, Emmett Price. Irene, I'm, I'm especially eager to ask you about this because you are a fellow theater goer. Uh, but there is a conversation happening right now. You know, to back up a little bit. First of all, we're in this moment where Hollywood, where theater, are having to have great examinations about where they're putting their money, their effort, their spirit, uh, in a recognition now, much belated, that they haven't been telling as many stories as of people of color as they should have been all along. So this is this moment where that will change. And in this moment, Variety convened a group of actors to talk about what representing black stories means to them. And and I, I know this from conversations that I've had with artists over the years, uh, that there is this divide of do you want to continue telling traumatic stories Uh, which can also be read, for lack of a better term, as trauma porn if you revisit over and over again. Or there's a desire to, can we move beyond that and just tell the stories of everyday black life on screen, on stage? So, Irene, we'll start with you asking what you think about this moment and this divide that actors have to face as they participate in these productions, whether it be on screen or in theater. Well, I think that this too will be a moment of reckoning because I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we will move from, well, we kind of move from stereotypes, but then we move to the exploitation of black, black pain and the desecration of black bodies. I am tired of seeing black bodies whipped, beaten, and shot on, on, on the major screen, particularly in the lived reality that every black person has to face. So I'm very glad that they're speaking up. But I think one of the things that even Jim and I were in disagreement with and in it is that should the theater be the place, you know, where we go get our black history lesson? Because if if that is, then it's not taking the subject matter seriously. I, you know, I can't see 12 years of slaves. Detroit, Em and I came back traumatized. My spouse left the theater theater crying, but then movies that are supposed to be upbeat like The Help, okay, there's the white savior trope, and it's the whole idea that um, she's going to save these maids as if a civil rights movement wasn't, a, you know, afoot. It, it denigrates the whole notion of black agency, but then there's the Green Book. That, too, was supposed to give us joy and look at this in a light note, but I was traumatized by this one who had to use the Green Book to go south. And what do you make of the argument that some actors are making saying we still have to tell these stories? It's still important to represent them, the, 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 the more difficult stories, the stories that you just talked about that so many people turn away from or even have to leave the theater. Oh, well, I Is this I, Emmett or me? I, I was sticking <laughs> yeah, with you for a moment, but either. Oh, go on, Irene. Go on. Well, no, go ahead. Go ahead, Emmett. Well, you- you know, I think that I think the challenge here is this, that that we are creative beings and I'll speak as an artist and I'm going to see if I can 
it, uh, I'm gonna see if I can and um, really inspire uh, Jared temporarily to see me as a theater person. So, so, <laughs> <laughs> I, the, you, you can be I my first was coming, date the when we go back the, to the theater. I promise you. The, 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 the day the day before I was with Mimi Jones, I was at um, the Speakeasy uh, Stage Company uh, for uh, Passover, and we did a talk back. And uh, Kadaj Bennett, who played Moses in Passover, uh, as well as Maurice Parent from the uh, Front Porch um, Artist Collective, were there. We were talking about this very um, challenge, and 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 the thing is that sometimes art is a place to process you know, uh, emotions and sentiments that have no other place to be processed. And clearly it's a public thing and, and there's a reflective process there. But if you think about something like Hamilton, which I love artistically, but it's not historically correct. I mean, so, That's so right. do we throw out, do we throw out the entire performance of Lin-Manuel's, um, you know, brilliance, you know, because he got creative. I mean, so that's the that's the sentiment. That I think creativity has its place, and I think we should be clear about that. Um, and I think that these artists have a decision to make, and some of them, depending on where their career is and where they decide to be in their career, um, have to choose to take these roles. Many of them are increasingly not choosing to do that, and I respect both sides of, of the of the challenge. Well, you know what I. I think, no, I don't think they have to do it. And I think they recognize finally that they don't have to do it. So I give you a, a classic example. Viola Davis, who was in, in, in uh, The Help, finally came out just last week that, you know, she regrets being in The Help and that she said she feels like she portrayed herself as well as her people. I think the problem when you're talking about people of color, because I remember when I went to see Rich Crazy Asians, or Rich, I can't remember the full title. We know what you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. I think because there's a paucity of seeing people of color in general, that, that what first comes out of the canon are these stereotypes. And I think that as more and more people of, of, of color are, are entering in this field, um, they don't have to make these kind of choices that I feel that Viola Davis very much felt that she had to make and Halle Berry felt she had to make or, you know, who got an Oscar for being a dysfunctional wife or, or Monique for being an abusive mother. So I, I think now, and I think particularly after uh, Black Panther came out and folks are recognizing, oh, this is a, this make, these kind of films make money, which before they didn't think Black entertainment did. I think that there's great possibility that the way of stereotypes and exploiting Black pain will go the way. We just don't have a balance. And I'm hoping that with these new actors and new screenwriters, we will see more of that. Irene and Emmett, thank you for your time. And I want to say, just so I don't feel left out, I too go to the theater from time to time. I just want to be clear. <laughs> Great to talk to you both. Thanks so much for your See, time. See, Emmett, you, you get to that. get off the phone. I get to spend the next all this time with him. And Emmett, I have a tight circle of friends who are on my speed dial for theater. You just got yourself on that list, so I'll be counting you. on you post-pandemic. Post <laughs> <laughs> Reverend Irene Monroe and Emmett Price join us every week for All Revved Up. Reverend Irene Monroe is a syndicated religion columnist at the Boston Boys 
Choice for Detours African American Heritage Trail and a visiting researcher in the Religion and Conflict Transformation Program at Boston University's School of Theology. Emmett G. Price III is a professor and executive director of the Institute of the Study of the Black Christian Experience at Gordon-Conwell Theological Ceremony. They, together, are the hosts of the All Revved Up podcast. To learn more and to subscribe, go to allrevedup.org. Coming up is the legendary Brooks Brothers clothing company giving a new meaning to white-collar crime for how it's treating its laid-off workers. The Boston Globe's Shirley Leung joins us for that and more on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Jared Bowen sitting in for Marjorie. I should say a caller earlier in the day tipped us off to the fact that the Yankees-Phillies game was postponed because of coronavirus concerns. Well, the Marlins-Orioles game has been canceled for the same reason. We shall see what happens to Major League Baseball. So Brooks Brothers has declared bankruptcy, leaving more than 400 workers at its Haverhill factory factory without jobs, without health benefits, and without severance packages. As Boston Globe business columnist Shirley Leung puts it, we have yet another luxury brand built on the backs of the working class failing to do the right thing. Shirley joins us online to talk about how this uh, racial reckoning has reached a high-profile bakery in town and other business headlines. Shirley, good to talk to you. Hi. Hi. Hi, Shirley. We'll, we'll talk about Brooks Brothers in a moment, but first, some, some good news, it seems. We've talked a lot about the restaurant industry and how it needs a bailout and the ripple effects to have so many people suddenly laid off, uh, especially, you know, I, I saw this in the arts community, too, where, where restaurant jobs or the so-called uh, safety jobs or security jobs of so many actors and, and theater professionals in town, but it now looks like they are getting some help. Yes, um, Beacon Hill is um, trying to pass a package um, where, um, uh, I guess, restaurants get a grant, um, and the House is proposing, uh, I think, about $15,000 for restaurants, uh, up to $15,000 one-time grants. Um, I think that's a good start. Um, I've got to think that restaurants um, will probably need a lot more money than that, um, and uh, because it looks like it's going to be, uh, you know, a t- tough sledding for a while, um, as long as there are capacity restrictions at restaurants. Um, you know, I, I think you've probably been re- reading some of the stories where you know our critics have gone out and eat at restaurants, and I don't know if you've been to some of the restaurants. They are some of them. They feel busy when you when you look at everybody sitting outdoors, but then you realize. I very few people are sitting inside. And so um, and, and I don't uh, I, you know, some of them have, you know, have had a, haven't hired everybody back. So it, it's probably going to be in, uh, tough till the end of the year at the very least, if not into next year. So uh, I hope that this is the beginning of some help. You know, the, the Beacon Hill passed some um, uh, cocktails to go. Uh, allowed restaurants to do that, so I, I think that that will help a little bit. But uh, we'll, we'll, I guess everybody's waiting to see what what more can be done. Well, can I, I? I'm wondering if I misunderstand what's going on here, because isn't this grant that you just described? You're talking about Jared conditioned upon sports betting being it approved. Is. So we don't have it sports is. betting. So <laughs> even if it's approved, 
it isn't like tomorrow morning when restaurants need money when they're hanging by a thread that that uh. <laughs> they're going to get anything so that you know it's nice in the abstract this uh, this mass restaurants united also has got a bill i think we talked about it last week that would provide a tax credit for landlords which mm, gave right. rent relief which according right. to Jody Adams in a piece in the globe and she's not alone is one of the major hurdles financial hurdles for restaurants let them do something on that which is real which is immediate so Again, while I agree it's a positive step, it shows they they are listening. It's not immediate cash, which is what they need, which relates to one other thing. Can I just get this out of my system? I know that there are, surely, that there are reports that legislative leaders are contemplating uh, uh, extending the session beyond the even-year deadline of July 31st. But let me just say, July 31st is when they go home, theoretically, because they have to go run for re-election. Number one, virtually none of them have opponents. Number two, there's coronavirus, so there's very little campaigning. Uh, number three, they can vote remotely anyway. And number four, there are so many huge issues unresolved from budgets to police reform to restaurant survival to the marijuana equity program and beyond. I mean, are they kidding? Without Why don't they just say now, we're going to stay here till the damn work is done? I, I was the session. I, I think they're all as Beacon Hill always says. They probably wait till the last minute to do Maybe. anything. Uh, and uh, but I think if if there's any year right that they're going to work past July 31st and, and be in session, it's this year. Jim, how many how many years have you been talking about this? I think this is the year. Every right? year, <laughs> every other year, right? But you know, my understanding I think, is I think from a piece your colleague Matt Stout did. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think. That while they've extended the session from time to time in odd-numbered years, they haven't done it in uh, uh, even-numbered years. And so not only for the reasons I just mentioned, I promise I'll stop after this, it also means that if the governor vetoes something, they're not there to override a veto. So they're basically saying if they go home, we're going to cede authority on this critical legislation we work so hard on to the governor. I mean, that's not the the way the system is supposed to work, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, this has been an exceptional year and a lot of things have been done differently. So I'm hoping that this will be a, so an, you know, something different for Beacon Hill, that they will. There are a lot of huge issues that need to be done, taken care of um, right away. And so um, I, I hope they will stay in session. So I don't do think I. they'll get everything done. I mean, you know, they didn't get everything done last year and there was an you know, they there were there are a lot of things that were left over. And so. Uh, and they had to deal with it in formal session, I think. And so, um, but yeah, l- let's hope that they stay past July 31st. Surely, staying with restaurants for a moment, there was a major piece in the, in the Boston Globe over the weekend about, am I saying this right, Tata, the, the, which is a, a tate. Yeah, tate, tate, a, a yeah. bakery, a very chic, very pretty bakery that over the last uh, decade has really grown in and around the Boston area. You go in, it's very pretty, it's nice, great baked goods. Uh, but now what are we learning about its founder? Yeah, Zurat Orr has come under a lot of fire after... Uh, uh, you know, part of kind of this racial reckoning, I think she had, uh, you know, uh, I don't know if it was on social media, she had supported Black Lives Matter, and that 
um, set off uh, a whole chain of events at her company. Um, black and brown workers and others came forward and said that felt that she discriminated against um, uh, black and brown um, employees and that she's made some alleged they alleged some racist remarks. Um, and uh, and she is stepping down now. According to her, uh, this was already in the works uh, that she had planned to step down. There will be new management, um, but it is uh, it, it's um, quite a uh, it was it's quite a, a long detailed devastating uh, portrait of this bakery. Um, you know, I but there's one there's a tate around the corner from uh, the Globe's headquarters in downtown Boston, and it was always packed. The, the food, the delicious, the the you know, it, it was very high end, very expensive uh, baked goods. So um, it, it kind of revealed another side to this bakery that a lot of people are familiar with in town. Well, let me just uh, add one note here. I, in the spirit of full disclosure, in the uh, endless you know, competition, the flower versus Tate thing. I'm a flower kind of guy in all fairness. And do you remember in the Globe about a year, uh, I don't know, it was about a year ago, I think it was Deborah First and Carabesque, and I hope I got it right, did a comparison of each of their pastries and drinks. And you know what what category they should have added there? Who treats their workers better? Joanne (laughs) Chang or the woman who runs Tate? (laughs) And I'll tell you who would have won that in a landslide (laughs) And by the way, and you know, Corby Cummer, who's our food guy, talks about this kind of issue all the time. This is critical. And if this is legit, and I assume it is because it's good reporting in the Boston Globe, people have to decide where to spend their money. And I, for one, spend my money in places where I know that workers are treated decently by the people for whom they work. So speaking of that, by the way, what? Yeah. Go ahead. I was just say, in this case, Tate is making changes. So she is stepping down. They're getting new management. And, yeah. and so let's hope that uh, they turn, in, they turn right. a page on this. Well, speaking of that, you wrote the Brooks Brothers follow-up. And we've had the discussions with you about some success because there was an uprising, I think a fairly elite uprising, when uh, the Four Seasons was screwing their people at the Bristol Lounge. Uh, uh you're basically suggesting, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, that if uh, people are Brooks, well, what are you, are you suggesting? What's happening in Haverhill well, to those 400 workers, and what are you suggesting? Right. So this week, the the factory, all uh, about 400 workers of the Haverhill factory, they make Brooks Brothers suits and other suits there. Uh, Brooks Brothers is in bankruptcy, uh, and, uh, and they, they've announced earlier that they're going to close all their U.S. factories, including the one in Haverhill. And the issue is that uh, those workers will not be paid any severance, whereas other workers, factory workers in other markets will be paid severance. And, and also other, it sounds like other employees will also be paid paid severance, but just not these 400 employees uh, at the factory. And I, I was struck by this, the similarities and differences between the stories between the Brooks Brothers workers and the Four Seasons. Now, when, when the Globe wrote about the Four Seasons and how the Four Seasons laid off nearly half its staff, this is the Boyle Street, lo- Street location, um, and they weren't paying full severance. And there was an uproar, a public outcry. You had, uh, you know, co- members of Congress uh, weighing in. You had uh, CEOs weighing in who, who would uh, patronize the Bristol Lounge because the Bristol Lounge is, is a place where a lot of movers, shakers have breakfast and lunch, and there are a lot of business deals done there. And, um, and within a week, the Four Seasons reversed course. They said they apologized. They said we were wrong. We should have paid full severance. Uh, to these workers, and they did. But with Brooks Brothers, 
they're going on almost a month now uh, since we've learned that these unionized workers won't be getting a severance. And I wonder why nobody, why, why there wasn't, um, why they didn't get severance. And, and, you know, maybe it's because I was thinking maybe it's because Brooks Brothers is in bankruptcy, but, um, you know, they're going to be sold. There's money. And Brooks Brothers actually asked the court, we want to set aside money to pay employees. Um, And and usually the court will allow that. Um, But I think what's really going on is that at the Four Seasons, a lot of them worked at the Bristol Lounge, which is a restaurant, and they got to know those workers, right? right. You know, they were serving them drinks, served them meals. They, they, you know, got to know, uh, learn about their families. But few people, if any, know the individuals who make our clothes. You know, we we will never meet, nobody mm-hmm. meets the people who who sew our garments, who who make our shirts or our suits. Um, and so I, I felt like, wow, they are out of sight, out of mind. And um, and it, I mean. Now, there are also members of Congress, you know, uh, Representative uh, Trahan, um, uh, Senator Markey is involved, Senator Warren's involved. They wrote a letter to uh, the CEO, uh, Claudio, Claudio Del Vecchio, um, to say, listen, pay them severance. And, um, and some people may say the union erred here. How come they didn't um, give them severance? How come they didn't have severance in their uh, collective bargaining agreement? And, you know, I talked to some union experts, and they said, listen, um, you, you can put in your agreement, but when you close a plant, you can also reopen negotiations, and that is a chance for the company to offer severance. And, and the union did ask for severance. And I, my larger point here is like the right thing to do is to give these employees severance. I mean, um, you are letting these people go into the worst job market since the Great Depression. It will probably be a year before they find jobs. Um, and, uh, you know, the one I was thinking of the one when I talked to Shirley Calvin, she'd been there a decade. Uh, she's a machine operator there. Um, you know, they're asking, I think, for the standard, like, two weeks severance for every year. So she would get 20 weeks severance. I mean, uh, that would be that would be great for her. Um, and, uh, and I think they also felt really hurt these workers um, because just like the four seasons they were so proud to work for Brooks Brothers I mean a lot of these are immigrants and so to work for this brand this storied brand they were so proud and also the CEO himself he would come to their Christmas parties um, and so he would come to Haverhill and and know, uh, you know they showed me pictures and and they so they felt like the CEO knows us and he's still uh, screwed us out of a full severance. And I mean, the other thing is that the Del Vecchio family, um, they're, they're like the richest family in Italy. I mean, uh, the family is on, you know, the, the Forbes billionaire list. And so it, it's not like there's no, you can't find any, there's, it's not like there's not a pot of money out there. There is. And so, um, and anyways, it was, uh, it was, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that there will be a resolution for these workers. Um, maybe when there's a new bidder, uh, when there's a sales bid, maybe, maybe they'll, maybe they can offer sevens or maybe they can keep the factory open. There is one bidder, according to the wall street journal that wants to keep the factories open. And I know, uh, Lori Trahan's office really wants to see that too, rather than have it become another strip mall. 
We were speaking with the Boston Globe's Shirley Leung. Shirley, I mean, Ed Anson, a huge, huge epic media presence in this town. He's the, he was the owner of Channel 7. I mean, if there's ever someone you would think incapable of dying, it's Ed Anson because he was such a force and he was so tireless. And we, we saw what he withstood when he lost the NBC affiliation but still managed to keep – not only Channel 7 alive, but vibrant and, and are still at the top of the ratings. Uh, but he did die yesterday. You spent a lot of time covering him over the years. I have, you know, and uh, he was 84. And, um, you know, the last time I saw Ed uh, in person was back in December. And uh, he lives in Miami, uh, but he uh, comes to Boston um, once a month uh, to, to visit the station, to visit Boston. He, he grew up in Massachusetts. And, um, and so we usually have a, an annual sit down. And, um, you know, at the time when I talked to him, he was 83. And uh, one of the questions I asked him was, uh, so, so how how long are you going to be doing this? How long are you going to be running your company? And uh, he owns uh, not only the TV station in Boston, Channel Seven. He also owns Channel Fifty Six here in Boston, and also he has a, a station in Miami. And um, he said he told me, "I want to di- quote, I want to die with my boots on." Mm-hmm. And uh, and so he and uh, and and you know what? That's what he did. He he was in he was at work last week. Uh, and, you know, he, I was told he was in good health and over the weekend he didn't feel well and, uh, he passed away peacefully Sunday. Uh, and so, you know, um, people might not realize this, but he pioneered, uh, this idea of kind of flashy, uh, graphics and breaking news, all that news. Yeah. Yeah, and he brought that to, he did that in Miami first, and then he brought it to Boston when he bought Channel 7 in 1993. And today, I mean, th- this is a model that got replicated all over the country. I mean, that's when we think of local TV news, we think of that now, right? And so he was a true uh, pioneer and, and, and maverick, too, because he was not afraid to stand up to uh, the big networks. And uh, now his accord, now his son, he has two sons, Andy and James, they will, uh, take over the company. Um, I'm told it will be a seamless transition. I mean, Ed had told me back in December he or he had a succession plan in place, um, and um, so we'll we'll see if it's if if things remain the same. You know, as uh, he he himself was obsessed with TV news, and so he loved uh, the pace of it, and so he that's why I think that's what I think kept him. You know, waking up every morning, going to work, and thinking about this stuff. I, and so it'll be very interesting to see if what happens to Channel Seven and Fifty Six and uh, the station down. If he, if his sons maintain the legacy, and keep in mind, um, it was Ed's father uh, who, who I think bought um, the first TV station uh, in for you know as part of the family business in the in the sixties. So this family has been in the TV business for more than half a century, and so. Uh, but yeah, he was, I always loved talking to Ed. He was, um, uh, he always taught me something new about, uh, the TV news business and, um, and, uh, Channel 7 had a great tribute to him last night and, uh, you could hear, you know, the anchors, their voices cracking up, talking about, um, with emotion, talking about Ed and his legacy at that station. You know, Shirley Young, we're way over, not your fault, but ours, but I have to say your piece about uh, a woman who I'm not sure enough people know in this time about rising from 
community organizer to X to Y to bank leader. It was such a great story. Could you just do a minute now on it, and we'll continue it next right. week? Because I don't want to give this short right. shrift. It's a great piece. Tell us about her. So Malia Lazou is uh, she has she founded uh, what is now Mass Vote um, mm-hmm. when she was 19 years old, and she was a college student at Emerson. She's a native of Hawaii, and for those of us, we, we may. Uh, know Malia from her time as, um, you know, future Boston Alliance. She right. she worked with the Karma Luke founder, Greg Selko. Anyways, what's so great about her is that she is now the bank president at Berkshire Bank. And uh, she's kind of shaking up um, banking as we know it. I'd and the whole so. idea is how do we close the racial wealth gap? And so Berkshire Bank is making a big bet on diversity, diversifying not only its you know, workforce, but also its customers. And um, and she was brought in a year ago, well before George Floyd and racial reckoning corporate America. And so now they are well into uh, a plan to close um, the wealth gap, M- making loans more. I mean, she talks about systemic racism in banking, with especially with loans uh, to entrepreneurs of colors and to homeowners. And how do we, how does a bank uh, undo all of that? Uh, how, how does the bank reassess or redefine risk? Because a lot of the usual um, credit, you know, measures of credit uh, worthiness, like FICO score, credit FICO scores uh-huh. or cash on hand or collateral, that hurts. Um, black customers are that prevents them from um, uh, getting a loan. And, uh, you know, when you think about how do you uh, build wealth in this country, it's often uh, through homeownership and entrepreneurship. And um, black and brown communities are, are really cut out of that cycle. So she is doing kind of the day to day work on how do we close the racial wealth gap. Very creative and really an interesting piece, and we'll talk more about it next week. Shirley, thanks so much okay. for your time. We really appreciate it. Fabulous. Right, thanks Bye, Jared. Bye. Bye, Jim. Bye. See ya. Boston Globe business columnist Shirley Young is a GBH contributor. She joins us every week. Up next, we're asking you if the extreme heat is tempting you to break the coronavirus rules. This is 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jared Bowen sitting in for Marjorie. I'm Jim Browdy. With temperatures nearing 100, how tempted are you to break from public health guidelines? If you're still skittish about going to the casino or a movie theater, does the promise of that blast of AC have you revising your own coronavirus rules? Have you cheated, taken off your mask, even for just a few minutes? We're taking your calls, and we don't have much time, so get in now at 877-301-8970. If the heat is adding another challenge to managing coronavirus, 877-301-8970. I spoke to two people in the last 24 hours who I'm pretty friendly with, one who had no intention to go to a movie theater till probably 2022. <laughs> she is going today. And really? another friend of mine, yeah, is go- for exactly what I said. I mean, it sounds crass, but because she has no yeah. air conditioning in her house and she's boiling, I love this, of course, and uh, uh, so she's doing an AC thing. Another friend of mine, you and I talked about before the show, is going to the beach. And what I said to him is, look at the photograph two weeks in a row of the M Street uh, beach in the Globe. You say the angle is not 
fully representative, you told me before the show. It wasn't quite as bad. It looked pretty bad to me. It's on my, my weekend running route. I spent a lot of time running around, and I've actually sat down on the beach. This week I chose a different beach, so it was more toward the end of my run. But it hasn't, <laughs> it hasn't been as bad as I've seen it. Of course, this is in the, before noon generally. Uh, but I was thinking about that as I was running by one day thinking a drone shot or a photographer could easily make this more congested than it actually is. The times that I've been there, and I'm not there 24 hours a day, it hasn't been as bad as I've heard described. How about the boat? Did you see the ferry out in Boston Harbor? That whatever the province sounds something? Yep. Where it was like Sardine City? Was that last <laughs> night or the night before? And you know why I assume yeah. that is? I'm not defending. By the way, the boat line has said, well, it's unfair. Because if they were below deck, it was, you know, air circuit. Well, they weren't below deck as part of the problem. They were on the top deck, and they looked packed, at least from the photographs, is uh, hot weather, which at one point we were told by the president was going to cure the coronavirus, is, in, I worry, is enticing. It's sort of how we started the show with Charlie Baker's travel uh, order. I worry that really hot weather today, tomorrow, I think it's three days, but it's still going to be in the 80s, but not as... As hot as today, I think the real, whatever they call it, real feel or something's 100 degrees today plus, is going to people to make unwise decisions. And as hot as you may be, you got to deal with it and not do something uh, stupid. 877-301-8090. I'm assuming the reason you said the photograph may have been unrepresentative because you acted irresponsibly on the beach. Because I was, in the middle, yep, I was in the middle with volleyball, and we had the keg rolled out <laughs> on M Street Beach. I didn't want anybody to know. Those abs are mine, absolutely. No, no. I was, And I even saw one of the photographers walking over, so I was thinking about that. You have to have something to think about when you're running. But by the way, let me just say, I'll, I'll, this is not scientific. It's random, and then I'll show up, and we'll take calls. I did detect yesterday, as I'm walking my kid's dog, that there are fewer people who are wearing masks all the time in my neighborhood wearing masks because it's harder when it's hotter, no? No, actually, I, I had a major walk yesterday all through uh, parts of Cambridge and Charlestown, and I would say it was the exception that people weren't, weren't really? wearing well, masks. Really? Well, that's great to hear. Yeah, so yeah. what are you saying? You did Charlestown and Cambridge for a walk, then you ran to <laughs> South Boston, and then you yeah. ran to another beach? Is that... Is, that? Yeah. And in the little break we just had, I ran around the building a couple times. <laughs> that's that's just what I do, Jim. I had a cheeseburger during the break. <laughs> Patty and Medford, you're first. We have very little time on Boston Public Radio. Thank you much for calling. Hi. Hi. Thank you. Um, love your show. Thanks. Um, I work at a major Boston. I work at a major Boston teaching hospital. Yep. Um, and I'm an administrator, so I'm working at home. And um, while I understand the topic, I feel like my opinion is that. To treat this as anything but really serious, like it's not amusing at all that people are starting to not wear masks. And I'm not Who's saying it's to, who, who excuse me. To, who is suggesting it's amusing? I am like well, I, I, the intro the intro sounded like, Oh hey, are you cheating? And I feel like the intro should be if you're cheating, you're threatening us all. You're <laughs> I mean, right. I, I um, by the way, I think that's a fair criticism a actually. You're right, you're right. I mean yeah. It's a problem because I mean I can't divulge too much about where I work, but let me just tell you, my, 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 my people are in the thick of it. And, mm-hmm. um, and, they're, and, and if we get another surge here, I mean, it's, it's just so crazy. It's so dangerous to let up. And while I fully understand that, you know, you want to have a talk show and you got to talk about stuff, to treat it as anything other than really serious <laughs> bothers me. And, um, and you know, and, and because, because of what my people have gone through and will go through again and continue to go through. Patty, I, um, I, by the way, and, uh, I, I agree. The, the introduction, I was probably lighter than I should have been. 
But I think if you've heard the first half hour of the show when we're talking about the governor's new travel restriction order, mm -hmm. you learn uh, that uh, neither Jared nor I take this anything but seriously. But I, I take your criticism as legit, and uh, thank you for sharing your uh, personal experience. It is serious, and it, it, it you know, it, when... I said it before, and I'm sure it aggravates some young men. Young men are the worst offenders. Again, I don't have any research on this, but just what one can see with one's eyes, whether whether it's across the country, whether it's in South Boston, the worst offenders and the more, most frequent offenders are young men who either feel they're invincible or don't give a damn. And I guess what I was trying to say, and Patty is probably right, I was doing, being flip about it, and I didn't mean to be, but again, probably was, is hot weather provides another excuse for, uh, an unacceptable excuse, but another excuse for irresponsible and very dangerous behavior. Well, we've been talking about that. That's been the big fear of summer. And actually, I think a, a segment like this is good because it prompts a call from someone like Patty, who obviously has great insight and has a lot of value in what she's saying to share what she just said to sober us all up again. We need to keep hearing that. Um, but yeah, we're well aware that these are the moments that we've feared all along, that summer would come and, and people would uh, let their guard down. They'd get on that boat that we saw uh, that was docked in Boston Harbor, where people came off saying, oh yeah, we were wearing masks, while others blatantly admitted that they didn't, uh, or as we've seen, you know, people rush out or have outdoor parties. Our number is 877-301 if you want to be part of this conversation. If you want to call, you should do it soon. You know what I don't? I haven't spoken, I don't think, while I've gotten into very modest, I wouldn't say disagreements, but back and forth with a few people who weren't wearing masks. When people do, assuming that people are not dopes, and most people are not in this part of the world, when people do go to a beach that is overcrowded or go on the top deck of a ferry in uh, Boston Harbor and allow themselves to be standing shoulder to shoulder with somebody. What's the mindset? Invincibility? Not giving a damn? I don't live with an old person, so I'm not worried about that. Uh, positivity rate is only one point whatever percent in Massachusetts. I mean, what is the have you spoken to I mean, what is the mindset well, of somebody who is thwarting these very basic and very simple public health rules. I have t had a couple of conversations, and then news accounts I've seen, there is this. There seems to be this thread that people believe that this is somehow a hoax, that, that, that this, no, the, not the danger of no. the pandemic isn't fully represented. Whether you want to acknowledge it or not, I think there are people out there who absolutely believe that, and I think that feeds into how politicized this whole pandemic has become. We were talking earlier about how, how difficult it, is it to, to buy a few dollars, spend a few dollars and put a mask on. It's not a lot of effort, but people, people believe Believe that it's some huge violation of their human rights. You know, we were talking at the top of the show about uh, how well comparatively we were doing in this state to virtually all the rest of America. New England's doing quite well, New York is doing quite well, and that's why the only states that are exempt from this travel order from the governor, effective August 1st, are the five New England states, New York, New Jersey, and Hawaii, because they have good numbers, is... We're in a state with good numbers where 8,000 people perished, where right. 8,000 yep. people lost their lives. That is huge. I mean, it is huge. And, and while we have it totally under control now, you don't have to say to yourself, if you're abusing the rules or contemplating them, well, we're not Texas. We're, governor DeSantis is not our governor. We're not California, where obviously there's been another 
big-time flare-up, to say the least. This is a state that lost 8,000 people, which is immense, no? No, I agree. And I feel like we just passed one of our great tests that I, w- I was worried about last week was that two-week mark from when we were out of uh, the 4th of July and when uh-huh. we would start to realize whether people had let their guard down in a moment like this and celebrate the 4th of July. Families might get together and, and test waters to see what's careful. And as we've seen so far, the numbers haven't really shifted so that we have been, been maintaining here in Massachusetts. Again, because I think for the most part, people realize that we had this epic loss at the beginning of this and certainly do not want it repeated. Well, I, I think you're right about the history because the numbers don't lie. But I also hope that people aren't susceptible to, again, 100 degree weather makes one do crazy and to quote Patty, irresponsible things. In any case, I'm sorry we get to more of you, but uh, I guess it was rant time. Wear a mask, whatever all the every everything you can do is so simple. And the sacrifice is so incredibly pathetically small just do it and let's try to get this behind us and save as many lives as we possibly can so yes. that's it jared as i said on the other side you you want to come out of the other side of this proud of, of the again it's a small sacrifice but it's proud of the sacrifice you made i agree well thank you for listening to another edition of boston public radio tune in tomorrow for frontline's michael kirk on his new documentary and cy montgomery she has a new book about the comeback of the condor our crew is Chelsea Murs, Arjun Singh, Zoe Matthews, Hannah Ubley, and Aidan Connolly. Our engineer is John LeClaw Parker. Our offsite engineers are Miles Smith and Dave Goldstein. What's on Greater Boston tonight? Well, you know, we've talked about almost not at all, and I feel bad we didn't do it on the radio. There's a big time Senate uh, race, primary race. Last night was a debate between Markey and Kennedy. We're going to start tonight's show with Yahoo Miller from the Bay State Banner and uh, Victoria McGrain, who's been covering the race. Uh, uh, talking about the race, September 1st, the primary. Robert Lewis uh, Jr. is a pretty legendary figure in Boston, founder and president of the base. He threw out the first pitch. One of the people threw out the first pitch of the Red Sox opener the other day. What most people don't know is he had a near-death battle with COVID that started on his birthday in March. He's going to talk about it for the first time tonight with me. And we talk about Mimi Jones, this local civil rights icon, Uh, Living in Roxbury, who made history in 1964, as you were discussing with uh, Emmett and Irene. Well, there was this incredibly powerful piece done a few years ago, produced by our colleagues Emily Judum and Paris Alston. We're going to play that tonight, and you really, really want to see this about a remarkable woman. That's all tonight at 7 o'clock on uh, Greater Boston. It was great to have you, Jared. Great to be with you. I'm Jared Bowen. I am Jim Browdy. We will be back tomorrow, and uh, thanks for spending some time with us today. See you then.